This is the voice of the Report of the Week, signing on. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone listening in to today's new podcast, VORW International. Welcome, one and all. Uh, Let's get right into things. Today's show, it's going to be around four hours, maybe a little longer. Just going to read listener emails and discuss some random topics. So there's the show. Hope everyone out there is doing all right. Uh, As always, for those of you who are tuned into the broadcast on YouTube... I do want to uh, direct at least your attention over to the video because we have a couple lovely pieces of fan art that are featured here uh, for your viewing pleasure, and I would like to credit the artists. We have four pieces of fan art featured in the show today. The first one is credited to an individual who can be found on Instagram at the profile Riley.ness, that's Riley.ness on Instagram. The second piece of fan art is credited to Anne in France. The third piece of fan art is credited to an individual who could be found on Twitter and most social media sites at Mara Munton Art, that's M-A-R-A-M-U-N-T-O-N Art, again on Twitter and most social media sites. And the fourth piece of fan art is credited to an individual who goes by the name MT, also found on Twitter at Relentless Resilience. That's one word, Relentless Resilience, on Twitter. If you are feeling artistically inclined and would like to submit a piece of fan art for future broadcasts, it's very easy. Make any piece you want any style, do whatever you want, and then just send me the piece via email as an attachment to v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Please let me know how you would like to be credited, so then of course I can let individuals know who this piece of fan art belongs to and where more of your work can be found. On one other note, please don't forget that in addition to this podcast, I also do a separate radio show, which is four times a week. So I do four new shows a week. That's four additional hours of content aside from this podcast every single week. It is broadcast on shortwave and AM stations around the country. And in this program... I discuss topics and subject matter, whatever it is that I want to talk about, and I will often delve into things that I don't feel I can talk about online due to various rules and guidelines and terms of service, censorship, etc. So it's really a, a platform that I could use to discuss what I want, play a little music, have a good time. You can tune in every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evening at the time of 10 p.m. Eastern, that's 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Pacific, on the frequency of 5850 kHz, that's 5.850 megahertz, shortwave. It is broadcast to listeners all across North America. If you have any questions about shortwave radio, If you'd like radio recommendations, or again, you have any questions about the medium, it's certainly something that I always take pleasure in discussing, 
and I will be happy to help you out. You could always reach me with inquiries of that nature, again via email at v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. We have a few sponsors, of course, that we uh, promote at the beginning of the broadcast. Please consider giving them your attention and patronage as they help keep this show going. The Running Jump podcast aims to give people interested in running the jump they need to get started in running. Each episode features lessons for runners and answers to listener emails. While the podcast is geared toward newer runners, plenty of the information will be used for intermediate and advanced runners as well. Recent episodes discussed getting started with running, the unexpected benefits from running, and dealing with the anxiety of people watching you run. The Running Jump podcast can be heard on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, and Audible. Give it a listen if you are interested in picking up running. Once again, that's the Running Jump podcast. Make sure you check them out. Have you ever found yourself lost in the woods? Forest to your back? and the rugged peaks of Mount Rainier looming over you? If so, you might have found yourself in the tiny little town of Wilkeson, Washington. If that's the case, and you find yourself in need of refreshment, step on into the doors of the Carlson Block, where the proprietors will make certain to satisfy every desire for food or drink. Serving the finest, naturally leavened sourdough pizza one could seek to find, and the coldest beverages fit to consume. Do you like cheese? They pull it every morning. Do you desire crispy, curly peps? Theirs do. Do you enjoy spicy fennel sausage? They mix it every day. Using only the finest local organic produce and flour to make their pizza, it's sure to satisfy. The major regional daily, the Seattle Times, declared the Carlson Block to be the best pizza in the state of Washington. Let your taste buds decide. So when you find yourselves lost in the woods and you're in need of a hot meal, you might not be too far from the Carlson Block, where strangers are treated like family and families come to enjoy each other. Check out their website, www.carlsonblock.com, that's C-A-R-L-S-O-N-B-L-O-C-K.com, carlsonblock.com for more information, and also check out their Instagram page at carlsonblock on Instagram, or at Ian Niles Galbraith, that's I-A-N-N-I-L-E-S, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H. Again on Instagram. If you're out there in Washington State and you want some delicious pizza, give it a shot. You won't regret it. All right, so like I mentioned, we're just going to get into the mailbag portion now. Uh, I already recorded it, so I know there is a lot of discussion, lots of random topics, uh, a lot of good stuff coming up. The mailbag portion of the program, it's really self-explanatory. It's a program where I just open up the email and I read what comes in. Now, of course, I can't get to every single email due to the volume uh, of correspondence that comes in, but I think you can tell by the fact that I'm going to be spending four hours on this that I certainly try to get to whatever I can. 
There is no set format. There is no set topic. So, the way this works, if you have a question, you have a comment, you have a topic suggestion, is there a question you have for me? Is there a topic you'd like to hear me discuss and impart my thoughts on? Is there something that you would like to share your thoughts, views, opinions on? Is there something you'd like to share with the listening audience? It can be anything. It's an open forum. It is a blank slate. You can discuss whatever it is you want. You have the absolute freedom to do that. The concept of this program is very simple, but it only works if people write in. You can reach me and submit a piece of correspondence for the next program via email at v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Once again, that's v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. And on one final note, I want to give a word of thanks to everyone out there who sent in the deluge of angry emails Because this show came to you a week late, you made it a whole lot easier for me to make decisions about this show and what I want to do with it going forward. Now let's step outside and read some emails from folks whose listenership is valued. Alright, good morning. Out here today, at least in the morning, doing some recording, I thought to myself, well, I know the, uh, the last time I was out here... The feedback was actually better than I thought it would be. And I guess this is one of those instances where you have a different view of it while it's going on. It doesn't necessarily match the result. Now by that I mean, as I was out here, I guess it was a couple weeks ago now, uh, doing some outdoor recording work, I thought that the environment was very hostile in terms of sorry, in terms of what I thought the outcome was going to be. Because I can hear my own voice. To me, it sounds very tinny, very echoey. Uh, It just sounds... It just doesn't sound like there's good acoustics at all. And then, of course, you have the background noise to deal with which in my case sounds, or at least sounded, extremely overwhelming. You had this discordant noise of the traffic, and the wind, and wildlife, and all of that, and it just sounded like it was just too much. And I thought to myself, how on earth could anyone listen to this and find it enjoyable? So, recording that segment, again, this was a couple weeks ago, felt extremely tedious. And, believe me, in terms of editing that, there was so much, (laughs) so many pauses, so many points where I just stopped for like five minutes because, again, it felt like I was just wasting my time out there. So, I mean, I was sitting out there, it felt like I was there for two hours recording, only to edit everything together and have maybe 15 minutes of workable, presentable audio. 
And the reception to it by the listening audience was surprisingly good. People said, oh, I really enjoyed it. I wish you were there longer, etc. So I didn't realize that. I thought to myself, wow, it's, uh... I guess I didn't see that coming. So here I am again, giving it another shot. This time around, I'm just gonna stay here as long as I do, and, um... I mean, to me, it seems as though there's less noise. This microphone is very highly directional. And things are just quieter in general. There isn't as much wind. Isn't as much traffic. You can still hear the birds a little bit. At least I can. Um, I don't know if you can at all. But I specifically decided to go out here and do some recording because... Quite frankly, the weather is very, very nice. This is how I wish it were more often. And uh, I decided, you know, I'm going to take advantage of this. Sit outside and uh, do something with it. Because the temperature right now is in the 70s, which is very nice. And there is a thick cloud cover overhead. Uh, I would say 100% clouds, and it's not a thin layer either. These are very, very dark gray clouds, a heavy overcast today, a mild light breeze, and uh, very, very pleasant conditions. So I said, you know what? Just going to go ahead, get some work done, and uh, let that be that. So that's <laughs> that's precisely what I'm doing. Got some emails we're going to read. I'm just checking the weather right now. I want to see how long this nice weather is going to last, if it's going to be an all-day thing or not. Let's see. Looks like the cloud cover is going to uh, yeah, be like this for a while. So that's good. Yeah, it looks like it'll just be a pleasant day then. All right, very good. Very good. So with that, then, open up the email and see what we got. So we'll just pick a random spot, go from there. I got my water here, my sip of water. There we go. And let's respond to some listener correspondence now. We've got a lot of different... Uh, interesting thoughts on various topics, so uh, let's just begin. I think we'll first start with a couple emails about the celebrity meals, since uh, that was certainly a question which I posed at the beginning of the show, the last show, and we certainly do have a couple responses about it. So let's see what we have. Joe in London, UK. I wanted to give my take on the celebrity meals topic. My view is that it's certainly a sign of the times with the ever more prevalent corporatization of the United States. It's also fairly lazy, as with the most recent one just being a couple new sauces. In fact, I think the sweet chili sauce has already been released previously. It is, however, great marketing on McDonald's part, as it seems many K-pop fans are basically blind followers for their favorite artists or groups and will buy anything with their name on it. Great shows as always, Joe from London. So thank you, Joe, over there. 
I appreciate your two cents and uh, take about that. Now, I would be willing to say, I don't think the, um, as you described, the corporatization of the United States is anything new, although I do think that the, uh, the, the thing that has really changed is that I think many companies realize they don't need to go above and beyond anymore to get customers. Uh, they really don't need to do that. There used to be a time where you needed exemplary products with service comparable to that in terms of its quality to be able to be successful. Nowadays, I think they realize they don't... They don't need to do that. What? Just put a celebrity's name on it? Conjure up the cheapest garbage you can think of, the most unoriginal stuff, and people are going to flock to it just because someone's name is on it. And it's a proven tactic. It's proof that it works. Look at the number of sales with the J Balvin meal and the Travis Scott meal and the even despite the discontent and displeasure expressed by some K-pop fans the money is there and the BTS meal is certainly successful so they just realize hey slap someone's name on it and people will come now here's what I will also say you know I, I know you might think that the BTS meal is low effort, but you haven't seen anything. If you look at what the Travis Scott meal and the J Balvin meal were in comparison, the J Balvin meal was just a Big Mac with fries. There's nothing new there at all. It's literally taking an established menu item and saying, hey, this is what J Balvin gets, and people rush over there to get it as if they've never seen a Big Mac before in their life. And the Travis Scott meal was just a quarter pounder, which, uh, with some added lettuce and bacon, which you could do any time otherwise. So, that's just what... I don't know. That's just how I see it. I think you can kind of tell I don't necessarily have the most positive view of the celebrity meals. But, despite my own you know, criticisms... Toward, uh, toward the meals and the concept, evidently, they are extremely successful. So, they're doing something right, anyway. Thank you for your comment. Steven is checking in. I figured I would throw my thoughts into an email, because it's not often that people actually think about these sorts of promotions on a much broader scale. I try to remove any sorts of thoughts around fandom slash hype when looking at something like this. Just some musings. Number one. Am I a target market slash segmentation? No. Clearly not. 34 years old, likes fast food, but has no interest in the music food crossover. Number two. Is the food interesting? No. So it really boils down to McDonald's cashing in on K-pop hype while promoting their new U.S. sauce releases. I also think it's weird that the entire collective of BTS 
is just medium nuggets and fries, implying that they're just one amorphous brain trust of McDonald's orders. There's literally zero individuality, even with BTS as a group. Perhaps that's just an old man yelling at cloud thoughts, and I'm out of touch. I had to go back and look at your video again, and really you're essentially reviewing the sauces. I saw a commenter state something that I love, which is, quote, We added an ingredient to sauces that already exist and slapped a new label on it, unquote. I disagree with you on the point of just adding an ingredient to a burger and making it not interesting, when essentially the same thing is done with those sauces. They're pretty much one in the same, other than McDonald's isn't taking as much risk releasing new sauces alongside a promotion with a super generic meal. If anything sticks out to me about this celeb promotion, it's just that... is that it's just marketing genius, as the net new sauces are not something, unless I'm mistaken, that existed before, even in international markets. So that begs the question, what did BTS dip their nuggets in before that? Does BTS even eat McDonald's? You can see the marketing department in McDonald's planning for this. Release a meal with some extra additions to a burger, dip fries in X current sauce, remove something from burger, add common but not commonly ordered item McFlurry, ultra generic meal plus new products with a twist. Where's the person getting a Big Mac and one of their newer chicken sandwiches, mashing the two together with extra Big Mac sauce? That's weird, and something I'd be into. At the end of the day, me analyzing this is why I'm not in their target market. All the best, and I hope the video does gangbusters, Steven. So thank you for your thoughts, and, uh... I certainly understand your point in terms of the disagreement that the, uh sauces are essentially one and the same with the uh, burger and a new ingredient added, and that it's really the same thing done. The, the reason why I just disagree is that, for instance, with the Travis Scott meal, I could go to McDonald's any day of the week. I could even go right now, even though the Travis Scott meal is not and has not been on the menu for a while. And I can go and I can get Travis Scott's burger, no problem, right? I could have done this years before this ever existed. Get their Quarter Pounder, an iconic sandwich, and add on some lettuce and some bacon. And there you have it, you know, the Travis Scott burger. So that's something that I always could have done. Whereas with the BTS meal, I couldn't go to McDonald's any time before and order the sweet chili or Cajun sauce, you know, I just wouldn't be able to do that. I could say, could I get it? They would say, we don't have it, I don't know what you're talking about, it's not, it's not available at this McDonald's. So that's just where my own disagreement comes from. If I were able to get this sauce beforehand, I would say, absolutely, it's no big deal, it's the same thing. So that's just why I say, well, at least with the BTS meal, you can get something that they heretofore had not. So that's just where I'm coming from there, but certainly I, I do understand why you're saying what you're saying. But again, I do agree that these meals are more about marketing. 
than they are substance, and it's all about selling the point with a big name on it, and like I've already said, it clearly works. People flock to it, they, they love these meals, and I think there will be more, but at the same time, I don't mind the meals because, let's be honest, they're good for the channel. And with this YouTube channel being my bread and butter, uh, certainly these meals are a good thing for me because it helps keep the channel going, it keeps it alive, and it, uh, you know, it brings some new folks to the, the, the YouTube channel, so this certainly does help. And while we could offer our criticisms, like I said, they work, right? They clearly do. And looking at the statistics, it's clear that there was a lot of interest in the BTS meal. The video that I reviewed, my review video, I should say, uh, about 850,000 people saw it. So, clearly there is that level of interest. Thanks again for your feedback. Um, let's get to two more celebrity meal emails, and then... We'll get to some other topics. A short comment from Dave in Pennsylvania. I didn't see a celebrity meal. I can't stand a single celebrity and would never buy their meal or anything else they promote. Nobody showed, in my opinion. I find the whole concept absurd, but people eat that crap up. So that's from Dave in Pennsylvania. And finally, one more celebrity meal email to get to. Let's take another sip of water. Ryan is checking in. First and foremost, I'd like to tell you how much I enjoy both of your channels. I listen to VORW on YouTube in the evenings after work, as I currently don't have a shortwave radio, but I'm thinking about getting one in the next few months. As for the celebrity meals, I've never really bought into the cult of celebrity thing. I think I would be more amendable to the idea of a meal designed by a chef or someone who makes their living around food such as yourself. That being said, I am open to the BTS meal because it has sauces you can't normally find in the United States. I enjoyed the international meals that McDonald's did a few years back, and this feels like a throwback to that idea. I have a question for you as well. Not sure if you've been asked this before, but has there ever been a food review that you have approached with fear and trepidation, one that you questioned whether or not you wanted to review it? Thanks for making the quality content from Ryan. So thanks, Ryan, for your feedback and uh, thoughts on the celebrity meals as well. A food review that I have ever approached with fear, trepidation, maybe some hesitancy... There certainly are a couple, but most of the time I try to just view the item with an open mind, um, but obviously there are occasions where I can't help but, you know, look at it and say to myself, uh, oh boy, you know. One recent example, I wonder if you can hear that crow. Let's see. Eh, maybe. If you do, you do, that's fine. Interesting birds. 
Um, but one item, the most recent one, I think, that I had a degree of trepidation toward was the Arby's Spicy Greek Euro. Uh, that easily is one of the worst ones in recent times. At first, I wasn't really... I, I thought it was going to be pretty decent. I mean, Arby's, you know, they have the meats, right? So, they... You know, how, how can you refute a claim like that? But after I... Number one, the first thing that was just a little weird to me with that review, I recall, was the uncertainty about what sort of meat was actually in the hero, and their reluctance to disclose um, what should be an obvious revelation. So that was a bit strange to me. Now, I figure it had to have been some sort of lamb blend, but still, I mean, you would think for a place that serves roast beef and all that sort of stuff, they would just be more forthcoming. Instead, it was like this mystery meat, which was just a little weird. Um, but what really did it to me with that review was when I opened up the wrapping and just saw the plethoric quantity of sauce inside the hero. Uh, I was truly disgusted. And <clears throat> I had to take my suit jacket off because it was just that... It was just that bad. But that was certainly a review that I really didn't want to eat it. I had to. This is just what I do. But it certainly was not an enjoyable... Experience. So that was one recent example. But looking past that, most of the items, again, I, I view with an open mind. The first time I ever tried the McDonald's McRib, back in 2018, I didn't know what to think of it, so there was a little bit of uncertainty in my mind, but it turned out to actually be pretty good, so that, you know, I kind of dodged a bullet there. Let's see, what else we got? I'm just kind of digging through some recent reviews. Most of the other stuff is, is um, again, I just go in with an open mind. Some of the Taco Bell stuff can be a little iffy, because Taco Bell, it's like people either they love it or they hate it. And I hold a kind of like a middle-of-the-road opinion with Taco Bell. I know for a fact that Taco Bell is extremely dependent on the quality, you know, of the preparation. And granted, we all know that the meat from Taco Bell is really just frozen stuff in a big plastic bag that gets warmed up, and that's it. It's not, you know, don't think for a second that it's actually made fresh there or anything. But it just depends on what you get. And that makes the difference between decent, of course, Americanized Mexican food versus absolute slop in a tortilla. And it's always a coin toss. Each time, it's always a coin toss. So that variability, it's always like, well, what am I going to get this time? It's either going to be outstanding or it's going to be terrible because it's always one or the other. And, uh, well, what's it going to be this time, you know? So, I don't know. So there's always a little bit of hesitancy sometimes when I'm trying something out from Taco Bell. But, again, you know, you have the Taco Bell diehards, and then you have the people who hate it. There's not too much middle ground there. So, Taco Bell can be iffy. And one other review that I remember that I was a little iffy about 
just because I'm not a big consumer of this, not that it was actually a decent product, but Chick-fil-A released um, mac and cheese, and I'm just not a fan of mac and cheese. I mean, I'll eat it, of course, but it's just not something I get all the time. So, you know, it's just sometimes like those real messy things. Same thing with like cheese fries and stuff. I normally just don't get that. Um, th that's just how I am. But again, it's for the sake of the review. I always tell myself, look, let's just see if it's good or not. Uh, put any judgments or reservations aside. And, uh, you know, let, let the viewers know if it's good or not. That's your job, so... Keep your head up and, and do what you need to do. So that's that's how it usually goes. So thank you, though, for your question. Certainly there are. It's not like I just look at anything and, you know, like I'm some sort of robot or something. You know, my eyes lock onto food. Food, eat, must be good. And, you know, no, it's not like that. Of course I have my reservations, but... I, I just keep that, for the most part, unless it's strikingly obvious, I just try to block it out while I'm doing the review, because, you know, I try to be unbiased. So, that's what we have there. Thank you for your question. Yeah, one, you know what, let's go to one more topic, I guess response to the topic of Celebrity Meals. This one I like because it's from a listener in Malaysia, where it seems as though the BTS meal was exceedingly popular. And if you only watch what people on social media are saying, you would think that every single living, breathing individual in Malaysia uh, has to love the BTS meal. As a matter of fact, in terms of the BTS meal, uh, there were large audiences who tuned into this review from overseas, uh, you know, which is sometimes not the case, at least in terms of the specific countries. Uh, the amount of views of that review from viewers in Malaysia, for instance, it was about a 400% increase compared to most other videos I do. Uh, same thing with viewers from the Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, South Korea, and India. So there were huge, huge increases in uh, viewership of that video from especially South, East, and Southeast Asia. Very, very interesting. And uh, most of the stuff that I saw on social media about the BTS meal was uh, particularly from individuals in Malaysia, and again, it would just, you would get the impression that everyone there is fanatical about it, but we have an email to the contrary who says, uh, I'm sorry for the language, but this is how I truly feel. I think it's effing stupid. No company as big as McDonald's would give an S about any musician, no matter how big the musician is. Can't wait for them to sell normal, cold, rotten French fries rebranded as a Post Malone collaboration meal for a huge markup, and watch the thing fly off the shelves. Tell them it like it is. Tell them it like it is. <laughs> Very nice. I appreciate that, though. You're getting the real deal. Some true thoughts about it. 
You know, it is very interesting, though, as you can see by the responses on the celebrity meals. Uh, it's obviously not, not what some would expect, you know, based on all the sales and everything garnered by the celebrity meals. You would think that every single person loves these meals and thinks they are the best thing ever. But you could obviously see here that that is not the case. So, uh, very interesting, but it's kind of good to read some opinions on the contrary. Alright, now let's get into some other topics and, uh, pieces of feedback here. Alright, next we hear from Nady, who says, Dear Sir, I'm glad to hear that the dentist appointment went better than you thought. I remember when I got my wisdom teeth pulled, it was the first technical surgery I ever had, and I was, no I was so nervous. On my end, it went well, and my dentist ended up playing some 80s music during the procedure, which was, a, which was a treat for me. I have more than a few questions for you, so you can pick as many as you want to answer, or none at all. These are just some questions that I had that came to mind while listening to the podcast. Also, I was listening to the newest episode in which you describe your dream about the ship, it sounds like you had watched a full-blown movie while asleep. I used to have dreams like that with extremely detailed plots. So, uh, thank you for your email, and we'll get into a few questions. Yeah, it is interesting, though, the uh, disparity in various dreams. You have some that seem so intricate and d detailed, and have all of these plots and different, even subplots, and it seems so realistic, whereas other dreams are just so... It's so simplistic, you know? And I don't know if that just comes to the, the fact that perhaps we remember more of one dream than the other, so it seems more detailed or what, or if there are just more vivid dreams and they're not all the same. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting, though. Uh, on to a few questions. Question one. I have tried listening to your broadcast on a web SDR without a lot of luck. I have no clue how to work it. Any suggestions? So, what I'll do is, uh, I've come to the realization with many of these web SDRs and online shortwave radios, I'm not going to waste the time anymore trying to explain how these work. Uh, so there is an easier solution. I can send you a link to one of those online receivers that is already fixed-tuned to the frequency that I broadcast on. Uh, there are a couple that I know of that will get a good signal, and all you literally do is you click on the link, it's again fixed-tuned to the frequency that I'm on, and you're guaranteed good reception. You know, the only thing, I'll just, I'll give you the links, and I'll just say make sure you tune in at 10 p.m. Eastern on these days, and you'll be able to hear it just fine. Uh, I will say as a preface, the one web SDR receiver in the Netherlands, it's a very good receiver, but in terms of picking up my station, uh, it's absolutely terrible for that, and I would really recommend that no one use that web SDR ever if you're trying to hear any of my broadcasts, because it'll get a bad signal at best. So I'll just send you a pre-tuned one, uh, you'll get good reception every time, and again, all you need to do is click on the link, and it's as easy as that. 
I think it's just a better approach at this point than trying to explain, okay, um, see this box here? You have to type this in this box and then click this and then move this over here and then adjust this filter and then zoom into here and then click this arrow and then do this three times over at this time, you know? Just say, look, here it is, click on the link and you're good to go. I think it's easier to do that. Um, but if someone does want to learn how to use those more, I do have some videos that I made about uh, web SDRs and how to properly use them that you could easily find on the main YouTube channel. Another question that you write, if you have, if you could have any superpower, what would you pick? Not just typical flying and laser vision, but powers like electrokinesis, uh, which is a word I made up to describe control of electricity. Uh, so in terms of superpowers, I would go with invisibility, uh, just so I can kind of go out and not be bothered by anyone, and uh, can just kind of, you know, can just go out and go to crowded areas and not get, not have to worry about other people um, harassing me or whatever. So I would easily do that. I know there's cooler things that I could do, but I would just go with that because it would be very nice and um, certainly something I would greatly welcome. And the final question. My favorite book of all time is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I have a few related questions to the book. Have you read it? If not, I recommend it. I try to read it every Halloween. I have read it, but it has been a while, so I certainly am not... It's not fresh in my mind, but I am at the very least familiar with the basics of the plot. Uh, so again, it certainly is something that I have a basic understanding of, but I can't say I'm extremely well-versed in it. Secondly, you ask, what do you think about the overall character of Frankenstein's monster? Um, personally, he is my favorite character, and I feel bad for him. So thank you for your email and for your questions. In terms of my thoughts on Frankenstein's monster, again, at least from my limited understanding as I rack my brain, it's one of those situations where, you know, you feel, it, it, it draws the line very, very, very closely between who exactly is the protagonist and who is the antagonist. Obviously, Frankenstein's monster had no say in his existence and was just created, really against his will, but couldn't you say that about anyone in this world, quite frankly? Uh, but obviously, because of his appearance, was horribly treated by most of humanity, which, you know, that is true. I mean, most people in this world are vain, they're narcissistic, and they are extremely judgmental and will be very, very quick to judge others. And I really don't care what anyone says or what some company posts on their social media or says that people are actually this way or that way, 
any of that. That's just lies, in my opinion. Um, that's just how I see it, anyway. So, yeah, humanity is judgmental. Always has been, always will be. No changing that at all. And while I understand the creature's decision to exact revenge upon those who he deemed wronged him, I don't, at least in some of the situations, feel it was the right thing to do. You know, it's just probably the product of a situation of desperation and felt like he had nothing else he could do except this. But, again, I just don't think that was the right thing to do. And that's just my, my, my two cents. It's just a bad situation in every, every aspect, pretty much. But that's my take, anyway. And again, I, I already said it, I prefaced it with this, but I'll say it again. I don't... It's not fresh in my mind, so I might have been confusing various details, etc. I fully admit that. Alright, let's get into some more questions now. We hear from JD, who has a couple. Um, I'm gonna answer two of your three questions. So first you say, Hello, John. I've watched several of the Running on Empty reviews in the past few years and recently tried the podcast. I've listened to the recent three four-hour episodes from May 28th, May 8th, and April 22nd and find your presentation and format to be pleasant and engaging. I like your message of open inclusiveness, so I'm looking forward to hearing more. I looked at the specific email address for running on empty questions, but didn't see any, so apologies if this isn't the right forum. I write today to inquire about the fast food reviews. Uh, to interject, no, this is fine. This email address is pretty much all that there is in terms of questions. Uh, continuing, I found fast food best consumed on site, whether inside the restaurant or in one's vehicle. Taking it home, ends up being at best a C-plus experience. Every moment the food sits in the bag decreases its quality. Time is steaming away crispiness. The whole thing is losing temperature. An order of fries you pick up at the window and munch on a minute later while parked are going to be superior to ones you consume 15 minutes later or more after driving home. Whether or not the food has traveled affects quality and therefore is a component of the score. So question one, does on-site versus at-home get factored into the review? It does, and oftentimes I just split the difference and, and take it into account. You'll notice also that I, I do that with many, many things. Um, for instance, I always try to factor in how would the sandwich, let's just say sandwich for instance, taste with more of this sauce, or less of this sauce, or more of this, or less of that, and factor that in as well. So yes, there are many, many things that I take into account. Uh, one thing that you also have to understand, though, is that most people these days, at least a lot of them, get food delivered. Uh, that's obviously a product of the, the whole COVID situation. But it's something that was certainly popular beforehand, and I think will remain very popular after that as well. 
with delivery services such as Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, uh, Postmates, etc. Obviously being very, very popular. So, I do disagree with the notion, though, that everything that is delivered or brought home is automatically subpar food, because if that's the case, how are all of these delivery services so popular? How is even pizza delivery, which is a concept that has existed long before the COVID situation, how is that even a thing then, if people are getting subpar food? I think obviously freshness does does affect the quality, but I wouldn't say it necessarily degrades it immediately to a C plus. Um, and that's just my disagreement in that regard. I, I've I've gotten so many things delivered, I've also gotten them fresh on-site. And yeah, there's a little bit of a difference, but again, I don't think it's as, as big as you might contend. But that's fine. Um, obviously, though, delivery and all of that is a, a reality these days. Lots of people still prefer that. And, uh, that's where that stands. But all these things are taken into account. Again, I just, again, it, it's it's not like what I said a while back, where I'm like some sort of NPC, and mindlessly look at the food, and think, Th food good, eat food, you know? <laughs> There's many things in the background that go on, and I, I try to take into account. That's the only term that I could even think of. I mean, again, I should probably say robot, because the other term might be pejorative to some, but it is what it is, too late. So, it is something, though, that gets into that gets factored in. Lots of things do. Uh, secondly, you say, how do you determine whether you are going to review in your car uh, versus taking it home? Uh, I, I just decide on the spot. It's like, am I going to do it in the car today or am I not? And uh, it's just a simple decision like that. Now, you have to realize, though, because you might be saying, well, I think you're giving it a bit of a handicap if you're getting it on the spot versus getting it at the um, at the delivery and it's, it's gonna be fresher if you get it at the store and then do the review there in the car versus oh, that was a big truck going by versus getting it delivered but the thing that you have to realize when I get an item delivered during that delivery time, I have everything set up. So it's not like I get the food delivered and then I decide to, oh, I get dressed and I do my hair and then I set up the table and the lights and that takes an additional 15 minutes. No, the minute that I place the order, I make sure everything is ready to go. I have the shot all set up. I've got the camera ready. I've got the lights on. I'm all set. And what I literally do is the minute I have my notes down, the minute the food comes in, I grab it, walk it over to the table that I'm doing the review at, I sit down, and I turn the camera on. So as soon as I get something delivered, everything is set, it's good to go, and it's all ready. So the moment it gets through the door, I'm reviewing it. On the other hand, when I get the food at the store, and 
do the review in the car, it actually might even take longer to set up in terms of a car review than you think. Because you have to drive around. Once you get it, you have to drive around. You have to find the perfect spot. And that takes a long time. Most of the time, that takes about five to ten minutes. Because I go into a spot, I have to get the camera out, I have to angle it. Now you can't really see the store, you can't see the sign. Have to back out, have to go to another spot, try that. No, that doesn't work. Go to a third spot. Now, alright, this fourth one looks prominent. Then someone else takes it, so I have to circle around again and find the next best one. Then you finally do that. Then you set it up. Then you have to assemble everything. You have to get the napkins out. You have to make sure everything is good. You have to make sure the lighting's good. You have to angle the camera just right. Get the seat adjusted, sit up. Then I always gauge the scene and make sure that there's no one around that seems like they're gonna interfere with the review. That's an additional five minutes. And the whole process after I get it at the store tacks on about 20 minutes. Uh, so already the, the food isn't oven fresh uh, as one would envision. And it's probably about as fresh as, as it is uh, if I get it delivered. So there's not really much of a difference as, as one may initially think, but certainly some interesting questions looking into the details of some of the reviews that I've done. So thank you for your questions. Always appreciate them. Jake is checking in, said, I was wondering how your experience on Tosh.0 was. To me, it was like he was poking fun at you. What do you think? Thanks. So thank you, Jake. Um, number one, I want to recommend a video to you and to anyone who is interested in that. And I mean, let me find the name of it, because I just want to get... I don't want to recommend you the wrong thing. Let's go over to the channel here. Type in Tosh.0. So there's a video I made about five years ago. Uh, March, March 2nd, 2016. Aptly titled, My Experience on Tosh.0. And it's about 13, almost 14 minutes long. This is when it was fresh in my mind. This is when it was really at the forefront of everything. This is right when the episode was released. I would highly recommend you watch this after I answer the question, because of course, with time, certain specific details fade. And uh, I think in terms of accuracy, that video is going to be more accurate than the response that I give you now, five years later. But overall, the gist of it is the same. But again, I would recommend you um, check out that video. So, Tosh.0. Let me give a little bit of background for those of you who don't know what that is. Uh, let's go to Wikipedia and let's get the description of it. Tosh.0 is an American television series that aired on Comedy Central from June 4th, 2009 to November 24th, 2020. The series is hosted and produced by comedian Daniel Tosh, who provides commentary on online viral video clips, society, celebrities, stereotypes, and popular culture as a whole. The tone is based on Tosh's deliberately offensive and controversial style of black comedy, observational comedy, satire, and sarcasm. The show has reached number one in ratings for its time slot, 
among men ages 18 to 24, reaching millions of viewers at a time. So, that's what it is, you know, it's just, it's like a clip show, where they, uh, it's hosted by the comedian Daniel Tosh, they look at viral videos, he kind of makes fun of them, and then he invites the creator of the, the clip, or the star of the clip, back onto the, onto the show, where, uh, Sorry, I'm just looking at some guy walking around. He's been... Who knows what he's doing. Looks like he's really chewing someone out on the phone. He's just... He's, I've been watching this guy for the last half hour. Because I'm sitting here outside, and of course I have a view of other areas. There's some guy just pacing back and forth, the phone up to his ear. Like he's really just ragging on someone. <laughs> I don't know. A very stern phone call, it seems. It's just distracting, but it's fine. He can do what he wants. So anyway, uh, then the creator or the star of the clip in question is sometimes invited onto the show. They do some sort of comedic segment there, and sometimes he'll interview the person, and uh, again, they'll do something funny, and that's that. But it's a comedy show, and granted... Whoever is on the show is the butt of the joke, right? That's just the way it is. Now, I think a lot of folks might say, well, you know, knowing how you are, that's not really like you to be on a show like that. I mean, it seems like you try to have a more serious approach to your content and what it is that you do, so why would you allow yourself to be on a show where all some guy is going to do is make fun of you? I mean... I thought you usually talk about the trolls and uh, all of that, so it just seems weird that you would allow yourself to go in and, again, get made fun of like that, especially on a national stage. So the reason, here's a little bit of the backstory. I had been approached for years by Tosh.0 before then. Uh, ever since 2013, when the one review of mine with the, uh, the pan pizza got some attention, I started getting emails from Tosh.0, and for a while, I just ignored them. I ignored them in 2013, 14, and most of 2015, because again, at that time especially, I didn't have much of... much interest in terms of growing the channel, doing all that sort of stuff. It just wasn't something that I was really, uh, really open to doing. I was just doing this as a hobby, and very non-serious. But starting in late 2015 and early 2016, I decided to try to start doing something with the YouTube channel and tried to uh, grow it. And, uh, you know, if it was successful, that would be great. If it wasn't, I, you know, hey, can't say I didn't try. So I started trying to seek out opportunities that could grow the channel, and of course, there was still that open invitation from the team at Tosh.0, and I thought, well, I mean, this is a national television program. Uh, it is going to expose this channel and content to millions of people, 
So certainly, even though I am going to be made fun of, uh, this might be advantageous, again, in terms of growing the YouTube channel. So, in late 2015, I kind of reversed my view and decided to take take the opportunity. But I did so with a few caveats, uh, one of which was never adhered to, and it's still... I don't have a negative view of Daniel Tosh, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I never have. I've always liked him, he's a good guy, and it doesn't bother me one bit. But some of the production, it's just the industry, this is how it is. It's not like Hollywood doesn't have this reputation <laughs> for, for no reason or anything. Of course they do, and this is just proof of it. But one of the caveats was that with the whole purpose of this channel, I'm tongue-tied, with the whole purpose of this television appearance being to grow the channel, right, what's the most important thing of this entire experience? To make sure the millions of people watching this can find the YouTube channel and whether they enjoyed what they saw and they want to see more of it or whether they thought it was the stupidest thing they ever saw and want to find something to laugh at, you want to give folks the opportunity to be able to find it and find it easily. So the condition that I even appeared on the show was to make sure I would be credited and that individuals would be able to find the YouTube channel. That at least a couple times I'd be referred to as either the report of the week or review bra, something that people at least could recognize and find. And those caveats were never adhered to, and I was never addressed by any sort of recognizable um, expression at all, at any point in time, verbally or in writing, in the entire episode, and anything that I did say that tried to do that was edited out, because the whole interview with Daniel Tosh was about an hour long, and only a couple minutes of that was ever even included. So, I feel like I kind of got the short end of the stick there, and they didn't adhere to their side of the agreement, but guess what, you know, this, that's Hollywood for you, that's, that's how they are over there, so beware. <laughs> beware. That, this isn't anything new. They have that reputation for a reason, and uh, that's why it is this way. But again, that doesn't deal with Daniel Tosh or any of those folks. This is just the behind-the-scenes stuff that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, interestingly enough, though, some people incorrectly say that the only reason your channel ever grew was because of Tosh.0. That's not true at all, though. It's actually not true in the slightest. And I want to conclusively prove that to you right now. Because what I'm going to do... Let's go into the analytics of the Report of the Week channel. Let's go right now to Custom. And let's go... 1... 1... 2016. And let's go to... Let's go to... 12... 1... 2016. And let's apply that. 
and let's see what the channel was looking like in the meantime there. You know, how many people saw the channel? So with the episode being released in March, March 1st, 2016, if this notion that the channel blew up after it is correct, you would expect a huge bump in views during that time. And guess what? There is no bump. The only times the entire year when there were bumps, uh, there was one time in June of 2016 where I got 145,000 views in a day. That was uh, from a meme on Reddit. On October of 2016, there was a, a time where I got a million views in a day. That was also from Reddit, from a meme posted there. Uh, from June onward, the amount of views increased, and that was because of some uh, <laughs> some drama going on on 4chan with stalkers and stuff, and that lasted the whole year after that point. But before then, there's nothing. There's no bump, nothing whatsoever. Let's actually cut it back now before June. Let's just go to January to May 1st of 2016. And let's go now to March 1st when the, uh, the Tosh.0 episode premiered. On February 22nd, or 27th, sorry, the YouTube channel got 15,835 views in that day. On Sunday the 28th of February, about 11,200 views. So, that's all before the Tosh.0 thing. On March 1st, the YouTube channel, this is the day the episode premiered to millions of people, the YouTube channel only got 12,000 291 views in that day. Only a thousand views more than on Sunday the 28th of February, and less views than Saturday the 27th of February. So what does that say? There's really no discernible increase whatsoever. On Wednesday, the next day, March 2nd, okay, it went up a tiny bit uh, to 15,700 views, but again, that previous Saturday got more views than that. And then it sharply dropped to uh, 8,000 views in the day on Friday, March 4th, then down to 5,000 views a day on March 10th, and uh, remained low after that. So there was no uh, impact in the viewership whatsoever from the Tosh.0 episode, and even less in terms of subscribers. And I remember I kept track of comments after it was aired, and there was nothing. Uh, no one even knew how to search the channel afterward, because it was never mentioned, so it had no impact on the growth of the YouTube channel whatsoever. And that was the whole point of why I did that, so that was a bit of a bummer, but... The experience on the show itself, I have nothing but good things to say about. If you know what it's all about, you know that you're not going to be there for a serious interview, you know that it's just a comedy show, so you're not going to be misled at all. Uh, you know, you know that you're going to be there to make fun of, so 
There's no surprise. I knew that I was going to be in for... I was going to be getting the treatment, so to speak. But there's nothing to uh, pitch a fit about because that's how it's supposed to be. I will say, though, that Daniel Tosh is a great guy. And everything that you see on the show is an act. It's a persona. That is not like how he is off-camera. The whole Tosh.0 thing is an act. It's That is his on-camera persona. When the cameras are off, he's a fantastic guy. He's actually extremely friendly. Um, I remember I was talking to him at some point during the interview, because he asked, he said, oh, since you're in California, you know, you ever get the chance to try in and out Burger? And I was honest with him. I said, no, I, I can't, you know, I was... I'm only here for this one day for the film shoot. I really wanted to, but it's just not going to work in terms of the itinerary and the schedule and all of that stuff. He stopped the interview. He stopped the show, and he said, Look, I really want you to try this. After this is all done, I'm going to have one of my assistants uh, drive you over to In-N-Out Burger so you could do a review of it. Um, I really want to make this happen. And, and he never had to do any of that. But he did. He's he's a stand-up guy. You know, another time, I remember during the interview, I was talking to him, and I mentioned something about the trolls and all that. And again, he stopped. He switched out of his persona, and he was honest. He said, look, you know, I know that a lot of people online can give you a hard time, but ignore those guys. You know, they're just... They're, they're there trying to bring you down. They're nasty, awful people, and just keep doing what you want to do. Keep being you. And again, he never had to say that, but he's a genuine, a genuinely good individual. He, he puts on this act for the camera, for the show, but he's not like that at all. And especially when you have that understanding that this is just an act, it's just for the camera, you're just playing around for the show, uh, it completely changes it. So there was no ill will. It wasn't like he was actually sitting there bullying me. Uh, it's all acting, and that's just what it is. So, now, Tosh.0, Daniel Tosh, he's a great guy. I have nothing but good things to say about him. Issues with, you know, the production and all of that, and some things that I wasn't happy with, but look, to tell you the truth, that's all water under the bridge now, and what's done is done, you know, it's that's all done, and uh, that's all that there is to say. But I would again recommend you watch my experience on Tosh.0 that I uploaded in 2016. And then if you want to, uh, the Tosh.0 YouTube channel uploaded the segment that he did on me, which again, I mean, just take it, understand that it's a comedy show. The whole point is making fun of me. So, just go in with that understanding. But if you want to watch that segment, you can find it uh, by searching Food Reviewer Sewebrity, that's C-E-W-E-B-R-I-T-Y, Profile, Tosh.0. And uh, you'll see it there. But again, the whole interview was about an hour long. And only, well, let's see... Only a couple minutes of that were actually used. Uh, it was it was fun, though. I mean, they had a whole set. They made it look like I was in 
a Domino's in South Korea. And, uh, I mean, they did go through a lot of effort there. I wasn't actually in a, uh, Domino's or anything. This was all just a set in a uh, Hollywood soundstage. So the whole thing is just kind of built up and that's it. Uh, one funny thing that you'll notice in terms of the, uh... Well, number one, in terms of the attire, the suit that they had me wear wasn't the one that I wore that day. You can actually find a picture of me with Daniel Tosh after the fact, and I'm wearing a gray 90s suit because that's what I was, uh, that's what I wore in that day. They told me to wear a suit, so I did, but after I, after I came in with that on, they told me that it didn't look, um, they wanted me to wear a giant, like one of those David Byrne suits, and they had trouble because so many of them, they said they looked too good on you. So they intentionally wanted me to put on a suit that's like five sizes too big. And that's why I'm wearing this gigantic suit. The shirt and tie are mine, but the suit itself was not. And that's why intentionally they wanted me to wear this giant suit. That was from their wardrobe department. It's probably sitting there on some sort of uh, clothing rack, you know, to this day but that was not my actual suit. So that's just for the show. Again, the whole thing is a comedy show. That's why things like that are done. Um, but secondly, uh, the whole thing, you know, takes place just on a, on a soundstage. The one thing that, it's just funny, I remember this. Uh, if you look in the back, as I'm sitting there doing the interview, you'll see they have posters on the walls in Korean, and it looks like You'll see to the right of me, there's one that's like this greenish color, and it looks like it's for some sort of hand washing or something. But you'll see they kind of messed up, and the uh, <laughs> the Korean characters are sideways. sideways. And I remember they said, oh, don't worry about it, no one's going to notice that, as they were setting that up. And no one ever did, but I just thought that was kind of funny. Uh, there was actual pizza there, and the whole thing was really laid back. Uh, it was a real stuffed crust pizza that they had with kimchi in the crust, which is interesting. It was a custom-made pizza just for the show. And honestly, the pizza was was good. I would have... If I were given the opportunity, I would have eaten more of it. But just for the sake of the show, they say, I'll just take one or two bites of it, and that's it, and then put it down. So that was all there was to it. In terms of Hollywood, a lot of it is so wasteful, because I was looking... That one pizza was all that we needed for the entire thing, but they had, like, 40 other pizzas just sitting there in case, I guess, you needed more takes, which was crazy. And I didn't see anyone eating it, so I don't know if they just threw it all out or what, but I thought, I hope at least, you know, the crew or something gets to eat all that pizza, because, my gosh, look at all the resources there. So, just a few thoughts on the Tosh.0 thing. I certainly had my, uh you know, view of it and my little issues here and there. But overall, it was a fun experience and uh, certainly something to talk about. So, thank you for your question. I think I'm going to read one more email and then uh, that'll be that for this recording session outside here. Then I'll move back in and uh, do it in the more traditional sense. This is a short question, though. Uh, Coda is checking in. Hello, Review Bra, long-time listener. The more I listen to your radio broadcast, it gets me excited for radio broadcasting as a whole, 
And I just started listening recently to uh, other international radio broadcasts. It's been really fun, so thanks for uh, getting me interested in the hobby. One question, do you ever play video games? If not, you should look into Fallout, as you might be interested in it. So this is a question that I get a lot. Uh, I don't play video games at all, really. And I'm just not a big video game person. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm completely against them or anything. You know, you do what you want uh, with your life, you know? Just be a good person. And uh, if someone wants to play video games, it's fine. I've never been a fan, though, of the first-person shooters and the very graphically violent games. I just don't really like those, and, uh... I'm just not a fan of them. It's just... It's not me. I don't like the gore. I don't like... I just don't like them. That's all that I can say. I'm not a fan of them. Never have been. And I'm saying that as I've played a few of them before, and that's how I've determined it's just... It's not for me. So, I don't like those types of games. Um, in terms of console video games, I played them as a kid. My first video game console was the Nintendo GameCube. And oh, I played a good amount of games on that. I remember playing a lot of the Legend of Zelda ones. I played, oh, let's see, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask... Wind Waker, and... Oh, what was the other one? It was the Zelda game from, like, 2007 or so. What was it called? Let's look this up, because now I'm not going to be able to... Oh, it was from 2006, The Twilight Princess. So, those are the Zelda games that I played, for the most part. Uh, what were other ones that I played? I liked Pikmin. I played Pikmin and Pikmin 2. Um, what were other favorites of mine? I liked Mario Kart, Double Dash. Luigi's Mansion was another one that I would play. Oh gosh, and there's countless others that I'm forgetting right now. Some of which are more obscure or more rare. Oh yeah, this, this one. Um, I don't know how popular this one was in the U.S. Looks like it's actually pretty expensive. Like, you could sell this game for, like, $200 or something, which is crazy. Uh, I always liked Lost Kingdoms and uh, Lost Kingdoms 2, though I liked the original the best. Those were, those were pretty cool. And there were a bunch of other games, too, that I played. Then, after that, I upgraded to the PS2, the PlayStation 2, where I played, um, Ace Combat 4 and Ace Combat 5, those were flight simulator games, where you're like an Air Force pilot doing stuff. Uh, the original Star Wars Battlefront and Battlefront 2 were enjoyable, and those are my favorites. There were others, but those, those come to mind right away. And then I upgraded further to the Nintendo Wii, where my favorite game on that was SimCity Creator, where you can build and manage your own city. That was pretty fun. I tried to play some of the Call of Duty games. I, di I didn't like a single one of them, and it just made my distaste in those sorts of shooter games grow. And uh, 
And then that's it for me in terms of console games, so... You can tell it kind of dies off around 2009 to 2010. And I've never played any since then. Uh, I will play some computer games from time to time, but they're all very, very dry. Uh, I'll usually just play puzzle games. I'll play the built-in Microsoft games, such as... Mahjong, Minesweeper, Chess, Solitaire, and Spider Solitaire. So I'll play those. And the only other two that I'll play that you could even... that are even multiplayer are RuneScape, which I actually haven't played that in weeks. It's just I've taken a break from that. And then the other game that I play from time to time is uh, 8-Ball Pool on Miniclip. And uh, there's two versions of the game. There's 8-Ball Pool, the mobile version, which is extremely popular. And then you have the online version. Uh, I prefer the online version. I, I like using a mouse to be able to line up the shots. And it's just more traditional and I like it, but not as many people use that. But the mobile one is like 10 times more popular. But I still go for the old school one, so I use the, the uh, online 8-ball pool. And I go by the name T-R-O-T-W Official. That stands for the Report of the Week Official. And uh, I do my thing. But that's what we have, and thank you for the suggestion on, uh, on the uh, game, by the way. Alright, so I'm back inside. And uh, let's just get to some more emails. I don't think there's anything else to discuss, so... This email comes in from an anonymous listener. Hope all was well. As someone who is always on point with his attire, I imagine that you probably think about which types of socks you wear to match your attire. Are there particular types of socks that you prefer to wear, such as argyle socks, or crew socks, and if so, why? And is there a particular brand you like to wear? I recently came across Bombas socks that are super comfortable. And what is cool is that for every pair you buy, another pair is donated to people in need. Hopefully you don't have to deal with annoying Sockland too much. I appreciate any input you can provide, and I enjoy listening to your podcasts. Sincerely Anonymous. So we have ourselves a sock-related question. I did look up the uh, socks that you suggested, or at least that you, you mentioned. The Bombas socks. I hope I pronounced it right. They do look comfortable, though it isn't something that I would wear, but they, they do indeed look comfortable. So in terms of socks and the types that I wear, there really are just two requirements and that's it. I'm pretty broad in terms of what I will be willing to wear. Um, in terms of brands or anything, I don't care. Uh, I'll just take whatever I can get. Lately, I've been wearing the gold toe socks. So the two requirements are this. Number one, they need to be in a dark color. Absolutely just a dark color, especially black. Uh, black socks are my go-to because they are extremely versatile and can really be worn with any of the outfits that I wear. 
and I like that it is black and essentially serves as a continuation of the black shoe. And I like that I am not about wearing bright socks or anything, and my personal opinion, I think that undermines uh, the formality of the outfit, and uh, I don't like that. So I just wear dark socks to match the dark shoes and the dark pants that I wear, and I just want it to essentially just be an even, smooth flow of color with nothing flashy um, to catch the eye because I don't want that. So I always go with dark socks, again, almost always black, but there are occasions where I will wear uh, very dark gray socks as well. Um, but that is really the extent of it. In terms of patterns, uh, a lot of the time I just go with solid color socks. Although I am impartial to the classic argyle, even striped or dotted, but again, as long as it's not obnoxious, uh, the socks are just something that I wear to especially keep my feet warm and uh, comfortable and not to take away from anything else, not to really be distracting or eye-catching. Now the other requirement, and this is even more important, because I will not purchase a pair of socks if they don't essentially meet this standard, but I need the socks to be long. Uh, the, the socks that I despise are the ones that go only to the ankle, and, you know, you see that from time to time, right? I think they're just called ankle socks. Let me... yeah. Ankle socks. They are, uh, I think, mostly... I don't know if those are really formal, mostly, I think, athletic and whatnot, but... Certainly you have those. Then you do have the crew socks, which kind of go... up really to the beginning of the uh, calf muscle. And... Even the crew length socks are too short for me. Uh, the ones that I wear, and I don't even know if there's a name for it, but they go up further than that. They go up at least halfway uh, up the calf, sometimes almost to uh, the knee. And the reason why I wear socks that long uh, is because, and this is just me personally, I think this just goes to show my personal uh, level of conservatism, but when I sit down, I don't want to have any skin whatsoever shown below my waist. I want it to just be a clean transition from long pants to socks to shoes, and that's it. Uh, with nothing visible ever. And that's a standard that I've maintained for over a decade now, and I can't imagine anything, anything but that. I'm not comfortable with that. So, when you sit down, sometimes, though not always, but sometimes the pants kind of lift up a little bit, and some of your leg is visible, especially the, uh, perhaps even part of the ankle, the lower calf, etc. And I don't want any skin to be shown there. I just want that continuation of the fabric, and that's it. 
And it's honestly, there have been instances where I've even worn uh, crew cut socks. And when I'll sit down, sometimes I'll feel the air touching the skin there, and it's deeply uncomfortable to me. So I need that to be covered up. And I don't like the way that it looks either. So that's why I will not purchase a pair of socks. I don't care what the fabric is or what the, the color or pattern is. Uh, if they're short, they need to be long. And again, they need to cover all that up, in my opinion. Now, someone will probably say, even on a 100 degree day? Yeah. Even on a 100, I don't care how hot it is. It doesn't bother me. You better believe when I was sitting out there doing the recording today, that's what I was wearing. The day before that, I wasn't doing any recording, but it was 101 degrees outside, and I was still wearing a tie, a long pants, long socks, black dress shoes, you name it. It's what I wear every single day. I'm, I'm not going to change despite however the weather may. So that's just how I am in terms of socks. But length is important. They need to be long. Honestly, let them go to the knee. That would be best. And uh, they need to be dark in color as well. So obviously an extremely, I imagine, traditional approach to it. But that's how I am with a lot of stuff. So thank you for writing in. <laughs> Speaking of the heat, we hear from Andrew in Anchorage, Alaska. I enjoy your show very much. Thank you for doing it. I've left my state only a couple of times, so I've gotten very used to the weather here. How do you live in such hot weather all the time? I don't know if I could do that. I think that 75 Fahrenheit, or 24 Celsius, is the hottest I can enjoy. Would you ever consider visiting up here? Thank you. So thank you, Andrew, up there in Alaska. Uh, certainly... I understand where you're coming from because I do believe that temperature and sensitivities there too is really an individual thing and perhaps it is influenced by the climate one you know is accustomed to but then in my case see that doesn't even really I don't know I just think it's a sensitivity that is particular to the individual Maybe for some, where they were born and raised has has an effect. Maybe in other cases it doesn't. I don't know. Um, but certainly, there are folks who, again, in your case, will only be comfortable... You know, will find 75 degrees to be the hottest one can really tolerate. And, you know, then there are... Other folks, of course, who could sit outside in 100-degree weather. Many of those same people, though, may not be able to tolerate, you know, the extreme cold temperatures that others might. So it's just, it's a spectrum. And different people, I think, fall into different ranges. I myself am variable. That's, that's how I see it. Heat, I have no problem with, ever. Uh, cold, on the other hand, requires some acclimation, but I can get used to it, and I can deal with it. So I'm flexible. Heat is my preference, but cold, I can live with it, I can deal with it. You just got to give me a little bit of time to get used to it, uh, but I will. You know, I, I will be able to. 
So that's my take on that. Uh, in terms of heat, well, I'll give the example that I was just talking about. The day before yesterday, it was... And see, this is just how I am with heat. This is how I've always been. This is why I can wear suits outside and be okay with it. The other day, it was 101 degrees Fahrenheit. It was bright, it was sunny, and it was very, very uh, hot outside. But I wanted to get some fresh air, so I went outside, I brought my uh, laptop with me, listened to the radio a bit, and I was outside in that for probably... Yeah, let's see. I'm just thinking to myself right now. I would say at least three to four hours, probably most likely around the three and a half hour mark. I was outside in 100 degree heat. And I was wearing, you know, again, long pants, long socks, uh, my black dress shoes. I was wearing a dress shirt and a tie. And I did have a cold drink, some cold ice water, and uh, sipped away at that. And I was totally fine in that. I was uh, completely comfortable. And another reason why I am comfortable out there is because I don't really sweat at all. I, I, re I don't. I felt, after I came inside, after four hours, I felt my arms, I felt my face, I felt my back, and it was bone dry. There was nothing. So that's another reason. I just don't sweat outside in that. Now, that's not to say, if I were out there doing labor-intensive work, I'm certain I would build a sweat, um, but simply by myself, just sitting there, I'm not going to. So that's another reason. There's, there's none of that to deal with, so it doesn't bother me. And at the same time, I realize, though, just because I don't necessarily sweat doesn't mean I can be a little lax on my consumption of liquid, so I always regularly consume my ice water, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm also able to tolerate it, um, because it just... I don't know, the ice water really helps me out. It keeps me nice and cool and refreshed, and uh, I like it. So I can deal with that. And that's why, uh, you know, the temperature here in Florida doesn't really bother me. Now, in terms of cold, on the other hand, again, I can certainly deal with that. I just need, if I am in a cold climate, after the first week that I'm up in a cold climate, I will be able to deal with it. And as proof of that, because I will put my money where my mouth is, I was up, I was up north during the first couple months of this year, and I was out there shoveling snow, you know, in uh, 20 degree Fahrenheit weather, even below that. I was out there at night, I think we were in the uh, single digits, uh, doing some snow shoveling and taking care of some ice and all of that, so I can manage that too. 
you get used to it after a while and it doesn't bother you as much. You just have to dress appropriately, layer up, all that, and uh, it's, it's okay. So, it's just, you know, I guess I'm, I'm flexible in that regard. And uh, that's just how I'm, that's how I do it. Now, in terms of visiting Alaska, you never know. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't have any plans to visit Alaska anytime soon, but it is a beautiful state. It is most certainly beautiful. Although the one, and you would probably know this um, way better than, than me, one thing that surprised me, I guess about a year or two ago when I realized this, was I, I had heard anyway, and maybe you can verify this or not, that during certain months of the year, mosquitoes can actually get very, very bad in Alaska. Now, it surprised me a little bit because a lot of folks, I think, don't make the connection between mosquitoes and a place like Alaska. But when you think of mosquitoes, you think of Florida and the swamps and all that. But I know it can get warm in parts of Alaska, and I've heard stories, at least, of these extremely massive clouds of mosquitoes you know, traveling across the tundra, etc. I'm curious if you can attest to its uh, purported validity or not. So I'm curious if you have uh, anything to say on that matter. Thank you for checking in. Audrey is checking in. Out of curiosity, how do you feel about 3D printing? I am a puppet builder, and this newer technology seems to be changing my professional landscape significantly. At a more mainstream scale, I recently saw a television feature covering the advent of 3D printed homes, massive printers being used to create homes almost entirely without skilled laborers. I would love to hear your thoughts and ruminations. Thank you for your time and for continuing to share your work so generously. I wish you all the best from Audrey. So thank you, Audrey, for your email and for checking in. So 3D printing. Now here's what I have to say, and you might disagree with this if you are a very, very strong supporter of 3D printing. So just, I hope you could see where I'm coming from here, even if it's a bit of a an impasse, so to speak, in terms of viewpoints. The technology itself is rather new, emerging, and I would suspect rapidly advancing. I remember when I first saw a 3D printer back in 2014, I think it was, the only thing it was even capable of doing is printing this little cube out of this cheap plastic sort of... Uh, sort of base, at least, this plastic-esque material. And it would take two hours to print this cube. And what would you do with it? You would do nothing with it, but that's what it would do. And it was still cool to see a printer create this, but... You know, its capabilities were limited. Now, maybe it was already... It had more to offer than that, but whoever managed it just... only wanted to make these silly things, and that's it. Um, but it has come a long way. I mean, lots of things, you know, it's 
Well, I mean, you could see in, in your field how it has affected things. And that leaves you with a pickle. Uh, certainly it's an emerging technology. Certainly it could have some benefits, but I don't necessarily support it. Oh, look, I'll tell I don't support it for this reason alone. Not that I don't like the technology. I think it's certainly interesting, but what I don't support about it uh, is the fact that I think it's going to be a source of killing off jobs and it's it's going to hurt a lot of people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into their craft only to get replaced by a printer. And I, I just don't like that. I've... A lot of those changes I can't really say can get behind. It's an interesting technology. I know it certainly does have its usefulness, but... I just don't think it's right that there might be a day where you'll even have a printer that will replace the need for carpenters and replace the need for many construction workers and even on other levels like what you're doing in terms of maybe with puppets, I don't know. Now maybe you're fine with that, maybe you oversee the printers, but I don't know, I don't like the concept of having these things coming along and you know, depriving people of their their careers, you know, their opportunity to do what they want in life and support themselves and their families. And, you know, I just don't like that. I think it also takes something out of, you know, having something created with care and passion. Because I just don't think a machine is necessarily capable of doing that to the same extent that a, a person could and it takes a lot of it, it it completely removes that from a pursuit and it's just something being manufactured you know by a machine it's not someone like I already said putting their blood sweat and tears into it but I don't know it's just one of the stupidest things I ever heard is when people say in terms of automation and how it's eventually going to, you know, take over the workforce, because believe me, one day it will. And people, you know, in terms of the question, well, let's say when 3D printers take over the construction industry and all the construction workers are out of a job and all the carpenters are out of a job and... Maybe it'll even replace plumbers and electricians. They'll be out of a job. And you get self-driving trucks and all the truck drivers got the short end of the stick. And, you know, etc., etc. The service industry ceases to exist with employees. And customer service doesn't either. And all this stuff. And it's like, well, what are all the, what's going to happen to all these people now that they're out of a job? And then the stupidest thing I've ever heard is you have these people that so smugly say, well, you still need people to watch over the machines. I think to myself, you got to be kidding me. I mean, you you got to be kidding me. Yeah, of course there will be people overseeing them. <laughs> A tiny fraction of people. It's not going to be one-to-one. 
Not a chance. I've felt this way for years. I think they're going to be shot down and left to rot. I think that's the way some people want it, quite frankly. So that's where my opposition comes from. The way I see it is that a lot of people, they have this view of it that it's got to be one way or the other. And there can't be... That's what I don't understand about so many things these days. It's always one absolute or the other, one extreme or the other. It's either this or it's that. It has to be this way all the way or that way all the way. There's no middle ground. Middle ground is evil. Middle ground doesn't exist. And all that nonsense. That's what it is to me, anyway. It's nonsense. Uh, One of my main ideals is observing middle. Now, there are many instances where I just do go completely one way or the other, but I also think that compromise is a very, very important facet of life. And I think that certainly could reasonably be applied in many situations, which would lead to perhaps the closest thing to a win-win. But so many folks just love, it's like, it's got to be one or the other, and that's it. No room for anything else. Like in terms of 3D printing, I see this view where it's like, the technology should either be completely banned, or it should be revolutionized to the point where it screws everyone else over out of a job, and used to that extent. Why can't there be some middle ground? Certainly get it perfected, you know, in certain ways, but maybe it could be used more akin to a sort of hand tool for certain parts, etc., and cut down on some costs like that. You know, a way for, like, certain repairmen and stuff to make quick parts right on the spot. That could certainly be useful, and other things like that, but not having to go as far as to kill off entire industries. That certainly is a useful thing. I don't think it should be done away with, but... Again, I've explained my frustrations, and these have been my... long-standing frustrations in terms of automation and all of that. I've felt this way... Yeah, for a, uh, for a long time. But that's just my two cents. I always, nowadays, have to throw in the caveat. I'm not the one that makes the decisions, so what does it matter what I think on anything? All right, next up we hear from Michael, who, uh... Now, as a preface, Michael, and I apologize if I'm just jumping the gun here, there might have been autocorrect a couple times in your email, because there's one thing, and I'll I'll get to it in a minute, that just left me a little confused, but I'm just going to read it as is, and maybe that's all there is to it, but that's that's all. Uh, As you write, hi there, John. First time writer, started listening to the show about a month ago. I jordake for work, and that's what I was confused about, because jordake, I guess that is the name of like a clothing line, in a clothing company, so maybe you just work for that company, but I wasn't sure if that was a autocorrect type thing or not. But anyway, you said, so I spend a lot of time in the car, and I was able to catch up with the past year of broadcasts. When, you st- when I started listening, I decided I wanted to hear your thoughts throughout the pandemic as it progressed, 
and it's been a fantastic experience. Uh, to interject, because then we'll get into the other topic, uh, thank you for your kind words. Good to have you as a listener. And I'm certain it was interesting going through the chronology of it. I'm not afraid to admit that there were certain things I discussed in terms of COVID uh, that I was dead wrong about, and other things that I think I maybe I did get right. I know very early on I was extensively discussing that I thought it would be a pandemic, and that did turn out to be true. Um, but the one thing that I, and I'm not afraid to admit this, and some people will disagree, but this is just my take, uh, that I think I got wrong was the initial believed severity of COVID. Now, that's not to say that it isn't severe. Of course, as any disease, COVID has a wide range, as we know by now, a wide range of potential impacts and effects and symptoms, etc. And, of course, I think at least not everyone, but some of us listening, maybe know folks who got it real bad or someone who died from it, etc. And I'm, I know for a fact some folks listening have certainly gone through severe cases. So that's there's no disputing that COVID certainly has the capacity to affect individuals in serious ways. Uh, Of course, though, there are many instances of individuals who have gotten it and have only gotten maybe a sore throat or a light cough or have felt nothing at all. It's just there's... What I'm trying to say is that there's an obvious broad spectrum of impacts that the COVID-19 how it hits you, right? You really don't know. It's like going to the slot machines, seeing what comes up. But when I first started hearing about COVID-19 and first started researching it, I thought that it was much stronger than it turned out to be. By that, I mean, I thought that almost a severe case was guaranteed if you were infected with it. So... You know, nowadays, what is considered a severe case certainly does affect a percentage of individuals, but it might not be the largest percentage in the world, right? It still does. I thought initially, based off of what I was seeing in January, it was a virus more along the lines of the severity, somewhere between that of the original SARS virus and that of Ebola, in terms of almost a guaranteed Either you're completely bedridden, likely hospitalized, and a 50-50 chance of death. And that's... I initially thought the severity of uh, COVID was something like that. And that's what got me kind of trying to ring the alarm bells at first. Because, you know, I was going on all these sites and stuff, and I was seeing all these videos and webms and everything of, you know, people in China uh, keeling over in the streets. And when you see that, of course, it gets you scared. You start thinking, are they, what's going on here? This is just killing people at random. 
what is this virus? How bad is it really? You start fearing the worst and you think that this might wipe out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in a best case scenario. Because you see in all these videos, you think to yourself, well, how, of course, you know, what, what, what is this? What? I don't know, thinking back about those videos from China, what those really were. I, I don't know. I think maybe it was just, maybe some of those videos were released deliberately. Maybe it was a type of, you know, psyop or something. I don't know. Just really strange. Maybe it was just like a collective hive mind type of thing of people obsessed with this emerging virus and they're scouring the internet for anything that they can find. Maybe some of those videos are actually people getting, you know, heart attacks or something. But when everyone's so concerned with certain narrative, whatever, trying to find things that reinforce their viewpoint, those initial facts of what it really is are kind of overlooked. I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe there was an initial strain of COVID after it got out, and yes, it seems likely that that's what happened, in my opinion. That maybe it did get out of that lab. Maybe the initial strain was the strongest one. I don't know. You know, could have mutated. Who knows? I mean, how much of how how much about this, especially in its early days, do we do we really even know? So I would say that there is room uh, for some healthy questioning, skepticism, etc., especially in the early days. But, you know, I feel bad because my intention back then wasn't to scare people. I myself, I thought that it was gonna be near apocalyptic. And again, obviously it has had its impacts far-ranging, you know, from all the folks who have perished because of the virus, all of the folks who got it and are still suffering from, you know, the repercussions of severe infection to this day. But then other issues as well that are kind of secondhand, you don't really think of it until you're starting to see the consequences, such as the lockdowns, right? And then you could start getting into all this debate as to its efficacy, and if lockdowns and curfews and closures and all that, were they really the right thing to do, right? One can, and this is the thing, there are statistics and figures and, you know, the experts on both sides that can argue both points, and it's just something you got to decide for yourself, right? On one side, you could say, well, yeah, it saved countless lives, and it needed to be done. There's some people who will go as far as to say I think it should be done every flu season going forward, whereas others kind of counter that by saying, well, I mean, maybe it did save some lives, but it ruined many others at the same time. You look at the impact it had on the local economies, all the deaths that were caused when there were restrictions put up on hospitals and folks 
couldn't go in and even, let's say, get a cancer diagnosis or get elective surgeries, so things got, in their own health situations, severe to the point where something that maybe was treatable is now terminal. The mental health crisis that was sparked by all of this, and all of that, people who are trapped in the house suffering domestic abuse, etc., etc. You could argue this both ways. You can say, well, it saved lives, no, it ruined and even ended lives. You know, who, whose side are you on? You know, what, 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 what's right, what's not? It's, that's a question I think you ask it, and everyone's going to have a different answer. So, I don't know. I don't know where I was getting with that. I guess that's what I was trying to say is that, especially in the early days of it, it was something I followed very extensively, but I, my intention never was to scare anyone. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to try to panic anyone, to try to... I just thought it was going to be extremely bad. I thought it would have had the same mortality almost as if, you know, Ebola back in 2014 became a uh, global pandemic or something. It would have... I thought it was going to be like the movie, the one from 2011, Contagion. thought there was going to be a societal breakdown and stuff. But, you know, it was able to continue in that regard. But anyway, thank you for your, for your thoughts, though, in terms of that. It certainly is interesting to kind of go back and look at that. Uh, you also said, though, I hear you talk about Starbucks water in the triple-filtered house. I think, I don't know what it was. In the triple-filtered sense, maybe. And I couldn't help but feel I should recommend the water filter I personally use in my house. The brand is Berkey. They sell two different types of filters to install that filter out different chemicals. And I usually let the water sit in a pitcher in the fridge until it cools. It's the freshest water I've ever tasted, and it's changed my life almost as much as your show changed mine. Uh, thank you. So, thank you, Michael, over there. Yeah, Berkey water filters. Uh, believe it or not, I am actually familiar with Berkey water filters. I've never used them, though. I think water filters can certainly be useful, very handy. And uh, if I do need one, I think I'll certainly research Berkey and maybe get one from there. I'll tell you how I first heard about Berkey water filters. I first heard about it, I would say about you know, maybe a year ago, when I was listening to a show on the shortwave. I don't think it was financial survival. I think it was a program called Call to Decision. And... It was discussing some current events, but it also was discussing um, being prepared for different things. And I remember the host, he kept talking about Berkey water filters. And I remember that, and the name stuck with me. So that's, it always rings a bell to me whenever I hear Berkey. I think, hey, that's where I heard about it on that show. Yeah, the Berkey water filters. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad, though, to hear that you had a positive experience and that it, it does seem like that product was you know, the real deal, not just something that kind of being peddled due to a sponsorship or something. So, very interesting. Thank you for your feedback, Michael. And uh, like I said earlier, good to have you as a listener. 
This is VOYW Radio International. All right, let's see what emails we have now. Let's keep it going. Uh, let's go back to a thought on the celebrity fast food meals. Herman in Norway is checking in. Today I'm writing to you about the prompt from your previous broadcast where you asked viewers about their opinions on the BTS slash celebrity meals and their role on the channel. I've got two different opinions on the meals, one on what they could be and one on what they actually are. In theory, they are a great idea for fast food chains and fans. The chain makes a new addition to the menu with characteristics from the artist, for example, some Korean cuisine-inspired items from the BTS meal, and the fans buy it. The fans are satisfied because they get a unique meal inspired by their favorite artist. But in practice, from what I've seen, the brands make an overpriced meal that is barely different from other items on the menu, the fans are unhappy, while the restaurant makes good money. I hope that they will choose to make more of the first types of meal, but from the development in the industry, I'm willing to bet it will be more of the latter one. Now to how I feel about their place on the channel, if they are a tiny bit from a normal meal, then I don't think they deserve a review. But if it is an original, new meal, then I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But at the end of the day, we're all here for your content, no matter what it is, so do whatever you think is best. Sincerely, Herman from Norway. So thank you for your feedback there. In terms of uh, how you feel about their place on the channel, I agree with you, although I still have to review them, because, I mean, those reviews, especially of the celebrity meals, uh, really keep things going. I mean, they keep the lights on, they keep the bills paid, you name it. But you are right from the sense of practicality. What reason do I have to try out, you know, a Big Mac again and some french fries with ketchup? It's We, we all know what this tastes like. I've reviewed it before. So from that practical standpoint, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. So thank you for your feedback. Next email, also on the subject of the celebrity meals, is from Erwan in France. Hi, John. I was listening to the last podcast on the road and wanted to give my opinion on the celebrity meals. I live in France, and 15 years ago, when I was 10, I had the opportunity to taste the Quay burger from the quick fast food chain. Quay, that's C-A-U-E-T, and I hope I did the correct pronunciation, but that's what it sounded like. Uh, Quay is a French radio presenter who became famous on the Europe 2 radio station that became Virgin and NRJ. I remember my mom listening to him when I was eating my breakfast around 2000-2001. He had the privilege to have a burger in his name, and contrary to the current celebrity meals in the United States, Quick, back then, created a new burger for the French market. It had three patties and the sauce from another famous burger from the chain, The Giant. To this day, it is the only real celebrity burger that I know, and I think McDonald's could put a little more effort into this trend. Sorry for any mistakes. If you find some, have a nice day from Erwan. So thank you for your email. Always a pleasure to hear from you over in France. And uh, that's very interesting to see an example that you cited of a celebrity meal not involving McDonald's or any of the big U.S. chains. 
So I thought that was really interesting, actually, to see. And I looked it up and uh, even watched an old commercial of it. So this, I believe, is a French fast food chain. But interesting to see that they, too, did a celebrity meal. And I wonder how successful it was. I imagine it was to a uh, extent, anyway. So very interesting. Thank you, Erwan, for your, for your comment. Now, this next email... I think some may not be satisfied with the response that I give to it, but I I just need to explain why I'm going to answer this the way that I am. I always have this email open, essentially as like an open invitation for correspondence, and listeners, of course, are free to write in with what they wish. But let's say, for instance, that someone has an extremely serious issue, especially in terms of health, etc. I just, I'm going to outright say I'm not qualified to give an answer on this. You know, I'm not a doctor, I am not a therapist, I am not a medical professional or some sort of certified, highly trained counselor, anything to that extent. And I think if it's a very, very serious issue, maybe someone's looking for advice, I just don't think offering advice is the right thing to do. Because maybe I have my own experiences, and maybe there might be little things that worked for me, but when you're dealing with things that especially affect quality of life to enormous extents... It's just it doesn't seem right to try to tell someone to do this and do that. I think a medical professional needs to be consulted, and it's just not right to try to give suggestions. That's just my take. I am not here to try to play God with someone else's life and say, do this, don't do that. You know, it's That's not what I want to do. There's people who know a lot more and a lot better than me, and I'm not going to intrude upon that. So that's why I'm just going to have to answer this the way that I I am. Uh, We have an anonymous and very new listener who wrote, To not beat around the bush of this too much, due to home situations, I am unable to seek counseling for diagnosed child abuse-induced depression, PTSD, and nightmares, any advice on dealing with these problems. And I understand that you mentioned that you might not be able to seek counseling for it, but I strongly implore you to try to at least look into any potential avenue that you can, anything. There may be different services, different programs, and different opportunities out there that may be able to assist you perhaps at no cost, or at least at very minimal costs, perhaps some sort of plan could be set up to cover that and to manage that and to try to get things taken care of a bit. But for issues like that, to me, I don't know, it's just something I can't, I can't offer any advice about it. I can't say just sit here and do this and think about that. It's just, I feel like that's extremely irresponsible of me to even remotely suggest. So I would just highly recommend to the best of your ability, try to see if there are any, any possible 
avenues. Now, I don't know where you are or what your situation might be, but again, all I can say is that I have seen many, many experiences uh, from individuals in terms of health treatment, both physical and mental, who feel as though they are at a dead end, and they feel as though that they have no access to it, but there are certain opportunities and paths and, and ways forward that maybe aren't initially seen, but there are ways. So there still may be ways that you can go ahead and try to pursue treatment, something that could hopefully get things headed in the right direction. Again, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know your situation. Maybe it would be unconventional. It might not be something you've ever done or considered before in terms of pursuing certain opportunities, but they still might be out there. So please don't give up. Hang in there to the as best you can, and I sincerely wish you the best of luck, but again, it's just not my place to to try to give advice because I am not an expert. I'm not a professional, and I think I would be doing more harm than good if I tried to act like, oh, I got this. I can tell you to do this and do that, and it'll make it better. I, I feel like I am... Uh, causing irreparable harm. So I just hope you understand where I'm coming from here. That's not to say that I'm free from any issues. Of course, I have things I have to deal with, and I have my ways of dealing with them, but it's a, it's a different thing. And again, I just hope you understand where I'm coming from and why I'm I'm giving the answer that I am. So thank you for your email, and again, I sincerely wish you the best. This next email is pretty much, uh, in terms of its actual applicability, in terms of giving advice, it's absolutely useless, my response, anyway. But I just thought it was entertaining, and I'll certainly like to impart my thoughts anyway, because I thought it was kind of fun to think about, well, what what would I do in my si- in this situation, and how do I perceive it? Uh, so this is an email coming in from Ali, who says... I'm currently listening to the newest VORW. I have to go into my work, into work at my place of employment, BP gas station, in about 20 minutes. I'm anxious because my friend slash co-worker quit on the spot yesterday, and I was supposed to keep her secret until today. I'm guessing my boss already figured it out since she left her key on my boss's desk and also left our work group chat that is mandatory to be a part of. I'm worried that my boss will be upset with me for not letting her know, but sorry, friendship comes before my gas station job. I apologize for the pointless email. So that was from Ali, who writes in. Uh, Thank you for the email. And again, (laughs) this this email was sent in like a week ago, so whatever's happened, happened, and... uh, I'm sure the dust is most certainly settled by now, but I still thought about the circumstance and, uh, you know, what, uh, if anything can be done about it. Honestly, I don't think you have anything to worry about unless your boss is absolutely irrational and completely tyrannical. I I really don't think that you have anything whatsoever to, to worry about. I mean... People quit. People leave their jobs. Happens all the time. People quit. They get fired. They resign. Whatever it happens. 
Um, most people don't 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 spend their lives at their place of employment. You know, they go from job to job. They switch every couple years, etc. Of course, there are instances where someone really does find that perfect perfect niche, and uh, they like where they are, and they try to stay there. But lots of people do. Again, they resign, they quit, they get fired, whatever it might be. Uh, so that's certainly something that's completely normal, and I'm I'm sure. And I'm not 100%, but it just seems likely that especially in a job like working at a gas station, I'm sure the turnover rate is high. So obviously it's not like this has never happened before. So, I mean, I really don't see... I, I just don't think you have anything to worry about. Okay, your friend quit. So what? You're still working there? You're still there? What? There's... <laughs> put up a help wanted sign at the door now, post an ad online, and uh, begin the process to find someone else. I don't know, I just don't think it's necessarily your total obligation to be the messenger to your boss and say, hey, I just, I gotta let you know so-and-so uh, quit, and that's that. Right, I, I, I don't know, it's just doesn't really seem like that's your uh, your obligation. Besides, the keys, you know, in the, the metaphorical, but also, I guess, literal sense, were already kind of left behind in terms of the individual leaving the group chat and leaving the keys on the boss's desk. So there's already clues and hints. So I don't think that your boss providing he or she is at least somewhat intuitive wouldn't start putting the pieces together and at least realize that something is off here. So, I don't know, it's just, and then, what, all you have to do, just, you know, be casual about it. If someone asks you about it when you went into work and says, oh, you know, did, did you know about this? And all you would literally have to say that would just cover yourself. You'd just say, oh, I don't really know what happened, you know. So-and-so was just really upset yesterday, and uh, I just wasn't sure what was going on. It's, that's all you have to say. What? It shows that you were observing the situation, but you're being honest about it, at least perceived. And uh, kind of covers yourself. And so what? Your friend doesn't work there anymore, and it's still going to be your friend. So what does that matter? So... To me, that just doesn't seem like an end-of-the-world type of situation, and uh, honestly, it, it's just one of, I imagine, many things that regularly happen at those sorts of establishments. But that's just my two cents, anyway. It just doesn't seem like an overly uh, complex or daunting situation to me. I think it's something that one could easily handle and uh, deal with. So thank you for your email. All right, let's get into some more. Got an email coming in from Zach in Quincy, Florida. Hello, when you're doing food reviews, do you notice that the food tastes differently in different places? And if so, do you believe this is due to the water tasting different in different areas? Love your shows. Keep up the great work. So thank you, Zach, over there in uh, Quincy, Florida. I think that's in the... Uh, that in the Florida Panhandle? Pretty sure it is. Anyway, uh, interesting observation and a good question. 
Now, most of the time, especially out of the food that I review, uh, most of the food tastes the same from one place to the other because fast food, by and large, is standardized. The same things, the same ingredients, etc., are used at every single location. Uh, so in terms of variances place to place, I really don't notice them. I think the biggest change has actually just come down to who is making the food and in terms of the preparation of that. I do recall once where there was a discernible difference in a good way, but it might have just been the fact that the um, the employees making the food did a better job. But I remember back in 2011, I was in Iowa, and I stopped at a KFC Taco Bell, and I got some popcorn chicken and three soft tacos, and it was great. It was one of the best I ever had. But I think that might just come down to the... Uh, well, the, the fact that there was a good crew there and individuals who knew their stuff and did a good job. And that's why the food was decent and why it tasted so good. I'm not really sure, but that's just my guess. So I think it's more it more or less comes down to the people making the food than any variances in water. I do know, in terms of bagel making, though, at least from what they say, I don't know how true this actually is, if it's just some sort of lie that they tell you to try to make it sound better, but I know what I've heard in terms of bagels and stuff. They say, oh, well, New York City bagels are the best because of the water that they use up there to, um, to make them. So maybe in certain situations, like with things like that, maybe it does have a role to play. But I think in terms of your generalized fast food, it really doesn't matter where you are. I think it's mostly going to be the same place to place. I will say, though, in terms of water, uh, water most definitely does taste different, even from just one house to the next. And I'm talking about your tap water, which I refuse to drink, not your tap water, specifically just any tap water. And I've tried the tap water in many different locations. I've tried it up north. I've tried it in the mid-Atlantic. I've tried it at a wide variety of locations throughout Florida. And it's different every single time. And that kind of creeps me out. But most of the time, tap water, it's just... different degrees of sliminess. And uh, I don't like that. The thing that I really detest about tap water is this slimy taste and texture it so often seems to possess. I can't stand it. So I usually... I just don't... Uh, I don't really drink it at all. That's why I like to drink filtered water. I will get the Starbucks triple filtered water. And I'll also get jugs of uh, filtered water from the store. And all I ever drink is that. I, I never drink tap water under any circumstances. I don't like it. I don't trust it. And uh, the only thing I use it for is washing my, washing my hands, really. It's just 
like I said, I just don't... Something about it that I'm just not comfortable with. And I don't want to take the risk, so I avoid it. So, yeah, it's like... I don't know if I've ever even had any, any what would be considered good tap water. It's just... Some tap water is more disgusting than others. That's all I could say. It's like a hierarchy of the worst of them all. Lindsay is checking in, says, Howdy, John. Uh, my boyfriend and I have been listening to the podcast, actually, I've been listening to podcast after podcast while on our cross-country road trip. I have been wanting to write in for a long time and finally think I might have something interesting. Our favorite stop so far was the RV Hall of Fame in Elkhart, Indiana, the RV capital of the world, and it made us really want an RV. So my questions are, what are your thoughts on RVs? Have you ever stayed in slash driven in one? Do you have a favorite model? What do you think the future of RVs is? Hope you're doing well. All the best from Lindsay. So thank you, Lindsay, for your topic. RVs, that always stands RV, stands for recreational vehicle. It's like a motor vehicle or trailer, which usually it includes like a living quarters designed for uh, accommodation. And you can drive the, the vehicle around and live in it at the same time. And I think from my understanding, there's different types of RVs. And it's like you have the ones... And I've seen all types. I've seen ones that are even as simple as someone who has what looks like a glorified little bed constructed and attached to the back of their pickup truck. And it's as very, very small and simple as that. Those I don't really trust, though, because it looks like the thing can just slide off onto the road at any given moment. Uh, Then you have, like, those types of vans that I don't know if you could really consider it an RV, but it's kind of, but it really isn't. Like those types of, uh, maybe those Mercedes vans and stuff that could really be, they could be really nice and outfitted with certain things and you can live in that as well. But I think that's more of just a van than an RV. Then you have the ones that are like, um, kind of like, and I don't know the terminology here, I'm looking at this page right here. It says a Class C motorhome. Is that even a thing, or is that just some term someone made up? Now, okay, yeah, you have the Class C motorhomes, which look like almost like a little bit of a truck slash a bus, and they have this protrusion at the top in front. Those look pretty nice, you know, where they they look like they're navigable but manageable at the same time. You still have some nice uh, space. You have the uh, class... Okay, the class B motorhomes. That's what I was talking about in terms of, like, the vans and whatnot. Okay, so that is a type of motorhome. And then you have the class A ones, which... Some of those look like a, uh, a coach bus, almost. They're huge, these things. And uh, I think those are the real expensive ones. Uh, RVs, I've never really, I've never had one. I've never taken a trip in an RV, but the concept itself, 
uh, does not bother me one single bit. And I think as some of you regular listeners may infer, uh, it's obviously something that I don't have a negative view on. Uh, I like it. I like the concept. And to me, it seems as though an RV is an extremely liberating thing. You know, you can... You have this little home on wheels, and it's giving you the ultimate freedom to be able to say, hey, I can travel where I want because my living quarters is right here. I can sleep right here. I can cook right here, etc. And I can just travel almost at, at will from one place to the next. And I think it gives you a lot more freedom in terms of being able to have what sort of maybe schedule or itinerary you want, travel where you want. Uh, You don't have to worry about the restrictions of air travel or having to deal with rigid reservations from hotels. You've just got the open road and, you know, you can control your destiny, essentially. And uh, that is really cool. I mean, I, I like that. That's an idea that I can get behind. And, uh... I think it's cool. Granted, I know that some RVs are not necessarily the most fuel-efficient, so costs in terms of uh, gasoline, etc., might get in the way of things for long-distance travel, and I'm sure repairs, etc., will add up also. So granted, you do need some money at least to have a quality RV to be able to make the most of it, but still, I think it, I think they're nice. To me, a good compromise seems like one of those Class B RVs. Again, like one of those Mercedes van type things. I would get a black one, honestly, if I had to choose. And that seems like it's not overly massive. It seems more maneuverable than the other two. But it looks like it still has some nice uh, comfort in it as well. So that's definitely a... uh, that's definitely a nice one, in my opinion. But yeah, that, that liberating feeling that I think it could provide, that sense of freedom, I like it. I like it. So if you do decide to get an RV, certainly it would be an investment, I would wager. But it's something that you guys would have to consider and uh, think, well, do we have the ability to, to get it, to obtain it, to uh, maintain it? And do you think it would be worth it? But in some cases, I think that'd be an absolute yes. And again, there might be various rentals and things you can do as well, kind of as a compromise or kind of, you know, dip a toe into it and and figure out if this is something you really want to do or not. But I wish you the best of luck and uh, I could see them being a lot of fun. So I, I certainly get the appeal, even though I myself have never really been in one or any of that. I certainly do understand the appeal. So an interesting uh, email. Thank you for writing in. Real quick before we get into the next email, uh, for those of you who are longtime listeners, or even just tuned into the last few shows, uh, you know that I've been mentioning my concerns and frustrations in terms of uh, reception of my show for listeners in Europe, and why I kind of told someone, I think, in the UK in the last show, said, I don't know if you should really get a radio because I don't know if you're going to be able to hear my show. And I was talking about the bad reception. 
I, I know it's not going to sound that great, but this is just a good example of why I tell people that. Uh, going out right now as I'm recording this is one of my shortwave broadcasts. Of course, it's a pre-recorded one this time around. Uh, for listeners supposedly in Europe, it's going out on the frequency of 15,770 kilohertz, and it's supposed to be beamed directly at the UK uh, and Western Europe. And listen to the audio quality, and you're going to understand immediately why I tell people not to uh, not to expect any good results whatsoever from any of my airings targeting Europe, because this, this is why. This is why right now. Uh, this receiver that you're going to be hearing it on, this is what it sounds like for listeners in the Netherlands. And... Uh, this is supposed to be right in the heart of the target area, and let me know if this sounds audible to you. All right, here we go. Could, could, you, could you make anything out there? I couldn't. Sounded, um, it's completely inaudible. You could barely hear like some sort of incoherent mumbling which is my voice, but nothing else. So I guarantee you, if you tried to get a portable radio and tried to listen to that airing in the target area, you're not going to hear anything, or you might just hear, again, like some sort of incoherent mumbling. The problem with this broadcast is that it seems to fall short of the target area by a lot. And what it's supposed to do is shoot up the east coast of the U.S., and then across the Atlantic, the North Atlantic, right into Ireland, the UK, and then into Western Europe and beyond. Um, but it seems like the broadcast starts shooting up the East Coast, and then it starts losing steam even up near Virginia, and it's broadcast out of Florida. So, what, this broadcast is only able to make it a quarter of the trip that it's supposed to, which is uh, pitiful. Like, here's what it sounds like. This is where it starts losing steam. This is what it sounds like on a receiver in uh, Maryland, where I already have so many broadcasts targeting. This is what it's supposed to sound like. And you can see it's coming in pretty clearly there. Um, any sort of interference in the background is just from this microphone, but it's coming in clear over there, so... Very strong signal up in Maryland, and then by the time I start checking these online receivers, even up in Vermont and Maine, the signal is already getting pretty weak at that point. So, it seems to me that this broadcast, it just, it starts shooting up the East Coast, and then it just dies out before it can even make it into the Atlantic, and it's non-existent in Europe where it's supposed to reach, so. Honestly, this broadcast is a complete and total dud, and uh, you better believe, I think next month, because I pay through it, I pay it through by the month, next month I'm discontinuing this one. And I think... I'm going to keep the money in the system, and I'm going to just change frequencies. Maybe I'll find another broadcast to uh, North America, and I'll just tell them, look, can you just transfer the airtime from this frequency to this one? 
And I'm just going to try another target area, because clearly this isn't working. So, that's what I'm aiming to do. Yeah, because it's just falling short. People in the Carolinas can hear it, but there's dozens of other broadcasts of mine they can hear too, so this is just overkill. And no one where I'm supposed to be targeting it can get it, so... Yeah, I'm getting rid of this one. That's it, I've made up my mind. And, uh, that's what we'll do there. All right. Well, you live and learn. Can't win them all. All right, let's get into some more listener correspondence now. All right, our next email comes in from... Noah in Canada. Hello. I hope you're doing well, and thank you for the excellent content. Regarding your question about celebrity meals at fast food chains... It's got to be a brilliant business decision for the artists and eateries alike. They both get promotion, and there is a surge of new customers, just as you said in your previous episode. However, it does all sound like something from a cautionary postmodern dystopian novel, doesn't it? I mean, it's even a little too obvious. The commodification of art has tainted it so fully that we discuss and view music through the same lens which we do McDonald's and chicken nuggets. A worrying trend, I guess. American pop music has always put its commercial interests before its artistic ones, so it shouldn't be a surprise to see this, but it all seems a bit on the nose. I wonder what kind of Happy Meal classical cellists imagine themselves being plastered onto. (laughs) Yeah, right. My question in the uh, email also is this. I was once a radio journalist at the CBC up here in Canada, sort of like our version of NPR, but I'm sure you already know that. And during my time working there, I couldn't help but think that you would do such an amazing job as an evening show host or newsreader at an FM station. Have you ever thought or felt like doing something like that? You have a much better on-air voice and personality than most professional, highly-paid journalists that I have worked with, including myself. All the best and thanks for the content from Noah. So thank you, Noah, number one, for your thoughts and uh, views on the celebrity fast food meals. Uh, Certainly, I I get what you're saying completely, right? It's just this kind of worrying blend of it all, and... (laughs) Yeah, what would a uh, what would a classical fast food meal even look like? <laughs> it's very very difficult to conjure up such a thing, you know. Uh, thank you for your compliment as well. Uh, of course, the CBC. I am very familiar with them. You know, the CBC, the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, used to be on shortwave, but they aren't anymore. Uh, it makes sense that they used to have a shortwave service for listeners in the very, very far north of Canada. And they also had an international service called Radio Canada International. And uh, unfortunately, the main domestic service and the international service uh, both got shut down at the same time back in 2012. Uh, There was the one station was called Radio Nord-Quebec, which was broadcast, again, to, like, northern Quebec on uh, 9625 on the shortwave. But that got shut down 
in December of 2012, and they replaced it with some FM transmitters. But I don't know. It's like, how can FM replace shortwave or AM all the way for that huge, huge expanse of land up there? So I don't know. I don't agree with that decision, but it's been so many years. I figure anyone up there has found an alternative one way or another. And uh, they also had some low-power shortwave stations, uh, CBC Radio 1. They were relayed on shortwave uh, through transmitters in uh, St. John's, uh, Newfoundland, as well as Vancouver, Canada. And kind of one transmitter covered one half of Canada, the other covered the other half. But they shut those two down as well. The first one got shut down, I think, in 2016. That was the Vancouver one. And then the uh, Newfoundland one got shut down in 2017. And that was a shame because I was able to listen to the Newfoundland one. And especially at night, I would be able to get them. And I, I enjoyed listening to them on the shortwave. But I even wrote them an email asking if they'd ever come back and... The management at the shortwave station were upset that they got shut down, but begrudgingly they said, no, it looks like they pulled the funding from us and uh, it's done. So I do remember that. But thank you again for your compliments. Uh, I don't know if I would ever consider getting a job at like a uh, NPR type station, though. I think it would certainly be fun, but I just don't think that's something that I really see myself doing. Uh, but I do appreciate, again, your kind words and uh, compliments. We have an email coming in from a listener who goes by the name C.R. Fox, who says, I've been a Spotify listener here and a patron of your channel since early 2017. So number one, thank you for your listenership and also for your longtime support of the channel and this radio show. You continue... A couple episodes ago, you talked about your struggles being an online personality and your amount of self-awareness after seeing people discuss you online. First off, thanks for being an example to others of how to be yourself regardless of social pressure. I believe we as a society have progressed too far to keep living our lives according to societal rules for trivial things. I think many people would be much happier if they knew how to better embrace themselves and who they are rather than who they are told to be. I wanted to share a thought on self-awareness. I've had anxiety my whole life, and I often describe it like an intense hyper-awareness of myself and how I appear to others. I end up being fixated on wording all of my responses perfectly, over-preparing for things, and passing up occasions for fear of people judging me. I think self-awareness is a double-edged sword, and we have to find the right balance. We need to be self-aware enough to understand how we affect others around us, so we don't become narcissistic, but we can't be so self-aware that we hide ourselves from the world because we aren't perfect. I find that letting go of my self-awareness is what helps me relax and just be in the moment, something that's normally hard to do with anxiety. Anyway, just some thoughts for you and your listeners. Thank you for the great content and positivity, and take care. From C.R. Fox. So thank you for your email, for your kind words, and uh, for your thoughts on self-awareness. 
I agree with you that I think there does need to be a balance. You you have to have, I think, some level of self-awareness to be able to... Uh, you should be able to function to an extent in the world and to try to be a decent person, you know, you have to take into account, like you said, how your actions do affect others. And uh, that is certainly something that, yeah, you do need to be aware of. But you can't take it too far because then, like you said, it just, it gets too much where it becomes limiting more than anything else. I think... Like I said, I agree with you about striking a balance. I think that's very important. But I think it is a little difficult at the same time because well, because of two things. Number one, finding that midpoint and then sticking with it is easier said than done. I think one of the most difficult factors in all of that is not even yourself, but other people. Because you can feel like you finally found this perfect balance where maybe you feel like you can let go of some of that self-awareness and you can, you can kind of be a little more free, so to speak, while still being in touch with reality and everything's going great until someone else starts kind of shoving that back in your face and starts making comments and bringing things up. And it's like even if you have found a way to dismiss some of that self-awareness. You have to deal with other people who try to reinstate it, in a sense, either intentionally or otherwise, and that can get a little iffy. So that's certainly a problem, but it's just something that we can't really control, right? We can't control how other people are. We can't control what people say or do or think. I mean, it's just one of the things we have to deal with in life. So thank you for your comments. Yeah, finding that balance in terms of self-awareness, very important, and uh, thanks for checking in. Next, we've just got a short email coming in from Ahmed, uh, 21 years of age in Egypt, who says, I uh, just started following VORW and Report of the Week a few months ago. I just wanted to say that I liked every or most of what you do, I can watch you with no boredom, and I listen to your podcast while walking in through the busy streets, and it's a great blessing. I'm not sure whether or not you'll reply to this simple email, but I just like to do my part, which is letting it out and hope for the best. Have a great day, and keep doing what you like to do. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. It's a pleasure to hear from you. I appreciate your short email, because it's always a lot of fun to hear from listeners. You know, someone could always correspond with this program. It doesn't need to be, you can if you want, of course, but it doesn't need to be a long email with anecdotes and 10 questions or any of that. The long emails, of course, are fun, but it could also just be a short email even just to say, hi, I'm listening. Even though online I do have the analytics and all of that, unlike the radio, it's still just fun to hear from listeners, and uh, it's always amazing to see the diversity of the audience to this program, so it's great to hear from a listener over in Egypt. Uh, there aren't too many folks, I, I believe, in Egypt who listen to the uh, programs, so it's great to hear from you. I know once or twice I've gotten a, you know, some emails from online listeners in Egypt, 
And a couple times I've gotten some uh, radio emails, some people who heard the broadcast on the shortwave, but it's still rare, so uh, great to hear from you. Pleasure to have you as a listener, so thank you for your email. All right, we got an email coming in from Alex, who said, I had an interaction that reminded me of the podcast and thought it might fit into the mailbag portion of the show. I understand if not, though. As a person named Alex, I was also inspired by the Alexes that wrote in last time. I was at the hardware store today and asked an employee, probably in his 60s, which battery would fit a power tool I wanted. He helped out and managed to sell me two more tools in the matter of five minutes. He explained the different electric motors, and I realized it's very similar to my electric car's motor. And he got talking about Nikola Tesla and then Thomas Edison, and before I knew it, I was being given a lecture about American history, then world history. He taught me things I had never even heard of about the Civil War, World War II, U.S. Presidents, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and various trades of land over time. Between a few topics, he'd realize he had his own questions and looked forward to researching when he gets home. After something like 30 or 45 minutes, a customer came up and asked for help with a product, which snapped us both out of world history and back into aisle 17 at Home Depot. He gave me a bummed look and said, This is what happens when a history major ends up in sales, and politely went to assist her. I was instantly reminded of when you talked about having a passion in history, but few ways to apply it to a career, and I got to see living proof of this myself. The employee was great in sales, but it made me sad that he had an insane amount of knowledge and nowhere to apply it. He could clearly soak up information like a sponge while at the same time deliver it to me, who flunked history class in a digestible and entertaining way that I could understand. He said we'll have to cover some new countries another time in a joking manner, but next time I see him I'll actually uh, definitely ask him some questions. I have a question for you. What do you think of the history curriculum in schools? He seemed to disprove uh, due to incorrect and skewed information, but I really don't know if there's truth to that or not, from Alex. So thank you, Alex. Uh, Certainly an interesting email, and I I believe it. It is sad, though, because history, in my opinion, is such an important subject. There's so much to learn, so much to digest, so much, you know, to comprehend but so little to do with all of it. And uh, it's just very, very sad. I wish there was more that could be done with it, because, you know, history is uh, its such an important thing. It's, it's so valuable, so useful. You can look back at humanity's mistakes and successes and realize where we went right and where we went wrong and the mistakes that we're making right now and maybe where it's going to lead us, and uh, it's just so valuable, but so easily dismissed to people. They find it boring, they think that it's useless, etc. And it's very disappointing. It it is. I wish that there was more that could be done with it. Uh, Personally, I still love history. I research it every single day. You better believe I find myself 
at some point in time on a daily basis, always reading new articles and new, um, looking up new sites and watching new videos and reading new things about historical events because it just piques my interest and I usually just find them by accident on my own and then I just start going into the rabbit hole and start researching and uh, it's an awful lot of fun and something I certainly occupy my time with still every single day. So I certainly, I love it. It's, it's fantastic. Now in terms of history curriculum, I think, and I'm not totally sure, but I think anyway, that especially in the United States, the history curriculum varies by state. And there are certain states that have certain guidelines and requirements for what should and should not be covered. Now, again, I might be wrong, but that's the understanding that I have of it. So it's certainly variable from place to place. But I certainly do have my grievances as well. And here's what I mean by that. The thing that I like best about history is a quality that I think while it's a huge benefit, in my opinion, it's also a major liability. And that is with history, especially when one is teaching it, be that in a school setting or even to adults just for fun, one of, again, the best aspects, but also one of the scariest aspects of history is that it could easily be told like a story. You know, and unlike, let's say, science and mathematics, which is really just dealing with the data and and all of that, history takes into elements, uh, in my opinion, of storytelling. And it's like you're, you know, you're really discussing the tale of what happened all these years ago. And to me, that makes it fun. Like, that makes it even more fun to, to learn Because it's like, you know, these are true stories, supposedly, anyway, you know the way it goes. Um, Hopefully verifiably true stories, anyway, that I'm just able to envision in my head as it's playing out. And it's just so, especially if you're getting a good history lesson, it seems so vivid and realistic, and it just keeps you on the edge of your seat, uh, which it's captivating. And that's great because it makes the learning experience so enjoyable. But here's the problem with that. You cannot really mend a mathematical equation or the hard science, you know, the raw data, the way that you can with a story, right? With a story, if you're especially a good storyteller, you can change a few details, you can omit a few things to try to convey a certain impression that maybe isn't the real real truth of it all. But so what? You're doing a good job, it's realistic, it sounds good, no one's really going to question it. Whereas, I mean, obviously with mathematics and science and all of that, you can't just change some numbers around and expect people not to question that and not see the obvious. So that's the problem. History can easily be, in terms of one teaching, it can be changed. And one can omit a few details to try to make a certain event appear a certain certain way, be that for better or for worse, and that's a problem. If someone has an agenda, they could easily convey that 
and especially in school, no one is going to question it. You know, you're in class, you're not going to question the teacher most of the time. You're just going to sit there and accept that what you're being taught uh, is the real truth. You know, especially elementary, middle school kids doing this. And that's a problem. My approach to history, as it always has been, is you have to tell it like it is. And it doesn't matter if it's disturbing or deemed incorrect in society these days. You just got to tell it like it is. You know, you could even have, I think, in a history lesson, almost an editorialization of things, but it needs to be clearly expressed as so. You know, where there could be a time where the teacher or the professor, after discussing the black and white facts of what happened years ago, could then interject things and say, well, you know, I think it was this or that or whatever, but I just think when teaching things, you have to just tell the situation like it is, like it actually happened, and don't mend things or leave things out to try to make it appear a certain way. That's not right. And if someone wants to do that, then there's no point in even teaching history anymore when it's not the truth. You have to tell people the truth. You have to tell people the facts, the truth. You have to be honest about history, whether it's good history or bad history. You got to tell it all and you got to tell it like it is. Because in my opinion, that's the only way it can be done. And otherwise, all you're doing is lying to people, and there's no purpose of that. Then just get rid of history curriculum completely if you're not going to be honest with the students. So, I do have some problems with that. Most of the time, it's it's not that bad. Um, but I just don't think there's a place for bias in history. That's just my opinion, because what happened, happened. Sometimes there are things that happen to be proud of. Sometimes there are things to be ashamed of. Sometimes there are things that are misconstrued, misrepresented, etc. And you just got to tell it like it is. That's my opinion. That's how I've always felt about it. And that's why when I research history, a lot of the time I don't just look at one source and look at it as though this one source is the word of God and what they say goes, then I cross-check it with other things and different resources. And then sometimes I'll see something that people presented as fact only to realize, wait a minute, no. This, uh, it didn't happen this way, yet they're saying that it did. No. All these ten other sources have this happening. At, at, you know, it, it presents a contrary viewpoint, and then you utilize critical thinking try to determine what really happened. Sometimes, you know, you'll just, you'll never know. It's the other thing that has to be understood with history. Sometimes there are things that happen that we really just don't know what really happened. We have our best guess, we have our best idea, but in the end, we really don't know. And I think it's okay also to say, well, there's a lot of uncertainty about how this actually played out, but here's what the consensus is. Just preface it by saying that too address the fluidity of the situation and the uncertainty instead of saying like it's absolute that this is what happened etc so that's my take but history very important and uh like i said you just i think it should be taught 
very raw. You just gotta, could be like a story, but you just gotta stick to the, to the facts and the evidence that backs it up and tell it like it is. I want to give a short comment, or read a short comment, I should say, from John in Oklahoma. I'm a relatively new listener to the podcast, longtime viewer of Report of the Week channel. The podcast is a welcoming experience each and every show. I drive a truck in Oklahoma all day, and shows like VORW make the day much more pleasant. I also have a podcast that is just for fun, as well as a YouTube channel and website that is used for extra income. Watching your videos over the years has helped me be a better creator. I really appreciate how hard you work in producing high-quality content on a regular basis. So thank you. I appreciate your kind words, and uh, I always I always have a lot of respect also for all the truck drivers out there across the country. You know, if it weren't for you guys, I mean, in terms of logistics and keeping everything moving, all of the goods and everything that we buy, use, and need on a day-to-day basis, people forget if... If it weren't for the truckers, I mean, things would be a whole lot different, so thanks for all that you do. Sierra in Texas is checking in with a few short questions. A couple of these I think I've already answered, but we'll just we'll kind of go through them one by one. Uh, you're right, I love the podcast and the reviews, and I have a few random questions. So question one, do you like video games? Specifically, do you like The Sims? Now, I believe I answered the video game question earlier in the program, so it's not one that I'm really going to focus much on. Uh, I think I did mention that back when I played the Nintendo Wii, I did play a game called SimCity Creator, which I think that that's the same thing, isn't it? At least in terms of The Sims. Uh, Obviously, it's not quite, though, because I know it's much It's different, though. I think it is, like, in the same type of universe, anyway. Um, But I always did like that game. That was a lot of fun to me. Question two, you say, what kind of music do you like? People talk about how you're an old soul, so I was curious if that reflects in the music you like. Now, that's an interesting question. Again, it is one that I get a bit, but I'm happy to discuss it. I listen to a lot of music, although one thing that I will say is that Oh, actually, two things. Number one, I don't really care what music anyone else listens to. It really is of no bearing on my life or any of that. I really don't care. Listen to whatever you want to listen to. Me, personally, I do not like contemporary music. It's just it's just not something that I like. But again, I don't really care what other, what other people listen to. It's just not something I listen to at all. The music that I like primarily, is rock music, especially from the 90s, 80s, 70s, even 60s, 60s to the the early 2000s, quite frankly. Um, But the 90s is my my personal favorite, certainly like alternative rock, grunge, post-grunge, those I would say are my three favorites. But I do like the... uh, the classic rock as well, but mostly from that era, really, I listen to just music from the 60s to the early 2000s, although sometimes I will listen to some of the 50s music as well. I mean, I was listening to some Buddy Holly last night, 
But at the same time, I will delve into some more classic uh, genres. I mean, I will listen to big band music. The one thing when it comes down to music from the big band era, and this is just an interesting thing, I prefer the instrumental selections uh, mostly. I don't know. The ones with the singers are fine, but I truly prefer the instrumental selections in terms of jazz and big band music. So I'll, I'll listen to those sorts of selections. I will listen to some classical music, and uh, lately I've been listening to some classical music more than, than I used to, thanks to some programs on the shortwave that play classical music, especially uh, there are some programs on Radio Romania International that play Romanian classical music, uh, Radio Austria, has a classical music program. Then there's an independent program to the United States called Encore Classical Music. So I've been listening to those radio shows a lot lately, and that's kind of been broadening my uh, my horizons, so to speak, especially in regards to classical music. I really, I'm willing to give everything a shot. I just, I don't really like much of the contemporary music, and I say that from experience, having listened to it, and to myself saying that there's just no appeal to me. And there's some songs that disgust me. And uh, But look, it's not my place to say, listen to this, don't listen to that. If I detest a certain song, I'm not going to try to force everyone else to hate it either. And uh, that's just my business. It's not yours or anyone else's. Like what you like, I don't care. So that's that's the music for the most part. I don't say that. I know people, a lot lot of folks, make fun of people who don't listen to contemporary music. They act that anyone who listens to the classics has some sort of weird complex and thinks that they're, oh, well, I I don't listen to, you know, whatever. What's the the meme that they post sometimes? Something like, oh, I'm 13 years old and no one else my age knows who the Beatles are. And, and, you know, people poke fun at those sorts of folks and act like, you're snobby and you're better than everyone else. No, I just don't like the stuff today. I, I Like I said, I don't care what anyone else listens to. This is just what I do. <laughs> That's all there is to it. So thank you for your question. A good one. And you also have uh, a question. Uh, what do you prefer people call you? Report of the week, review bra, your first name. I wish you the very best. So thank you again, Sierra. Oh, you could call me whatever you want. I, I really don't care. You can call me anything. You can call me John, you can call me Review Bra, you can call me Report of the Week, you can call me The Report of the Week. Back in 2014, there was a time where people uh, called me Lecturer. I don't really care. You can call me anything you want. You can call me a little jackass in a suit. You could call me anything. I I don't care. What What's it to me? I've seen it all anyway, so I, I really don't care one single bit. Just Honestly, whatever is the easiest thing to write, or whatever preference you have, I say just go for it. So, that's, uh, that's my view of it. It doesn't bother me at all. An anonymous listener is checking in next. Hello there, Mr. Bra. I've been watching your videos for a good three to four years now, and listening to the podcast for maybe two. I think I found you from a dumb meme. I watched a couple of videos to see what all the hype was about and kept tuning in, 
For every new release until I realized I was watching for my own enjoyment. I turned some of my friends on to you, and we tried Burger King's Spicy Nuggets back when they were 10 for a dollar because of your reviews. We used to skip class and get like 60 of them. <laughs> Good times. Alright, that's enough exposition. I wanted to ask if you've been in a situation at all similar to mine. Now, to interject. I certainly, it's not the same thing, but I certainly will share my thoughts, and it's not identical, but I hope that it is at least of some use in terms of discussion, anyway. Continuing. I'm a bit of a wannabe athlete, and play club football for my school. I take great pride in my body, and I am very serious with my diet and training. I wasn't always like this, though, growing up. I was always overweight despite being involved in sports. Over the last three years or so, I've mostly figured out the diet and routine I need to have a pretty athletic physique, but over the last few months I have again gotten a bit out of shape. In December, I strained my groin, which led to some other gnarly TMI issues that I won't detail, but feel free to use your imagination. I don't know how it happened. The doctors have been remarkably unhelpful, and the recovery process has been brutal. There have been a good couple months where any movement was painful, so I just stayed in bed. This was recommended by the doctors as well. Since the initial injury, I've been extremely depressed. It was discouraging to be set back in such a way when I had seemingly been doing everything right. I let my diet slip up, had a brief encounter with opioid use, which I'm receiving treatment for, and have gained a bit of weight, nothing I can't lose, but definitely noticeable and hindering. I've just recently been able to rehabilitate my injury as I've recovered enough to do so, and I'm really excited to be healthy enough to get back into the gym. My question, have you ever suffered some form of injury that you've needed to rehabilitate or recover from? How did you do it? Also, did you have a good support system around you while doing so? For me, I noticed people around me seemed to think I was exaggerating the pain I was in, which really pissed me off, but I wasn't healthy enough, mentally or physically, to retaliate how I'd like to. That was a lot longer than I meant it to be. Sorry, but thank you. I hope you're doing well. From an anonymous listener. So... Number one, thank you for your email. And I'm really sorry to hear that that happened to you. You know, it's... I think it goes to show, though, the variability of life. You know, you can't really... You can't predict what's going to happen. I mean... You just don't know what's going to happen. I know you've been going through a tough time lately. It sounds as though some of those around you maybe seem to lack empathy or understanding realize that you're really hurting and that you've been going through you've been going through some difficult times i'm very pleased to hear though that you are recovering you are recovering you're on the right track i'm glad that the opioid situation is seeking the attention that it needs which is very important and uh, i'm very very proud of you for doing that it's a huge step and uh i i hope that you're able to make a full recovery and uh, get back out there doing what it is that you want to do. So, you know, just keep your head up, keep your eyes on the future, stay strong, and uh, have a feeling before you know it, things are going to be 
hopefully better than they've ever been. And then you could look back and you could say, look at how far I've come, you know? Something to really to feel good about. Now, in my situation, <laughs> oh, over the last couple years, I have hurt myself a number of times. And I don't know, nothing... I don't even know what people consider serious anymore. I'll just I'll just go over, at least in brief, the few times in the last couple years that I've had to at least, you know, have a recovery from something uh, to various extents. Two injuries, both similar, that were... Well, that I had to recover from, at least in some capacity. I did break a number of toes in my years. Uh, in 2015... I broke the big toe on my right foot. Now, I've, I never went to a doctor in both occasions where I have broken toes. I treated it myself and it healed perfectly. So all's good there, but you could easily tell that it was broken, dropped a heavy object on it and you know, for those of you who have broken a toe before, you know the way it goes. And you know when it's broken, where it's just excruciating to really move it much at all. And then, especially under the toenail, it all gets black, and even the toenail fell off eventually. But it healed perfectly. It was healed straight. I, I set it in place. Everything was good. And it's fine. Um, but I did have to walk around with quite a limp for a while in late 2015, but it did heal. And it was just one of those things that, I mean, it's it's just is what it is. You just had to take it day by day. And I kind of gave myself some impromptu physical therapy in terms of walking, but I was able to do it. And eventually after a, a month or two, it was back in shape and, and normal and all of that. And uh, that was one injury that I had to deal with. Uh, on the subject of toes, I either broke or, again, severely sprained on my left foot the index toe and middle toe simultaneously uh, when I had to run to get something and stubbed them very hard on a metal object. And that was last year. And again, it was similar, although there wasn't the level of, of um, where, it, where it gets real dark, as it was with the big toe. But it was just obviously a very foreign feeling, especially when they would move a certain way along with some pain, and I couldn't walk properly again for about a month. So, again, those two were a little iffy. They were either broken or severely sprained. But again, I did the exact same thing with the big toe. I made sure they were set. Uh, I used the insoles and again, cut back on the walks and gradually brought myself back into it and made a full recovery. So there was that. But in both of those times, it was extremely difficult trying to fall asleep, you know, when you're laying down, of course, because even just rubbing the toe against the sheet hurts. And that's, that's a little tough. Uh, the biggest recovery I had to make was in 2019 when I had my accident where I fell through the ceiling 
I think I remember the um the paramedics on the scene kind of measured it and and they said I fell at least I think 13 feet and uh hit my head on the concrete floor back of my head and that was that was tough but I realized it could have been a whole lot worse had I landed differently you know cuz I got also scraped up by these nails and I'm just very thankful that it was my back that got scraped up as opposed to my my front. I mean, if, you know, if those got my face, who knows what would have happened. Could have been real bad. Um, but either way, those left these real, real long, deep, deep cuts along my back that I still have some scars, but they've pretty much faded. You can almost, can't even tell unless you look with like a flashlight. And... Then, of course, I smashed into the, the concrete and, you know, really did my uh, tailbone in quite bad. And then the back of my head, too, which uh, at first they were concerned about that because when you looked at my my scalp, you could see it was all red and everything. But they determined that I wasn't going to, that you know, there wasn't any sort of hemorrhage or anything. And uh, so that was good. And then also smashed my <laughs> my teeth together, which had a nice big bite along the whole edge of my tongue. You know, I kind of bit that real bad. So my tongue was black for a bit too from all of the, you know, from that. And um, that was a tough one to recover from. I was mostly in bed a lot. And especially getting up and sitting down was excruciating for a while and I just had to hobble around. But again, I was able to um, to recover from that. It's just my attitude is that it's frustrating. You know, you, you can't do the things that you want to do. And I know that's quite difficult. But what I just tell myself is that you just have to keep your eyes on the future and strive for a day where things will get better. And even, you know, you have to tell yourself, look, it may never be perfect. It may never be the same way that it originally was. But if you sit here and wallow and don't do anything, you're you're not even giving it a chance. That's why, because, I mean, I, I know people who had gotten into injuries and don't do any sort of physical therapy, don't try to be active, they just wallow, and it never heals, it never recovers as it's supposed to. And now they're kind of left permanently almost disfigured in a way because they didn't do the physical therapy. They didn't, at the very least, try. And their quality of life is hampered by that. You know, so you have to at least try. It might not be uncomfortable, it might not be fun, but it's what you have to do. And again, that was a tough one to recover from. That took me about two months, I think, to really bounce back from. But again, I was able to. Now, one lasting effect, and I assume it has to be from that, even though it's not quite two years since it happened, but when I go for long walks, especially around the three-mile range, I start getting this weird feeling... Again, like kind of in my lower back, 
where it's like I can still walk and there's zero pain, but it just feels like not everything is like, I don't know, clicking into place right, you know? It just feels like something's wrong. And again, like the first two, even three miles, I don't get that. I feel completely and totally fine. But once I get to a certain point, it starts feeling weird. So then I just stop for a minute, kind of, you know, get some fresh air, whatever, give myself a couple minutes to just, I guess, let it settle itself out, sort itself out, and then I'll continue. But usually that's a sign that I've kind of time to wrap things up. And that feeling only ever started after that fall. I have to assume that that's just going to be permanent, but that's fine. I mean, I've never had any aspirations to be an endurance runner anyway. I, I never had any idea or notion that I ever wanted to run a marathon or something, so I really don't care. It's, look, I could still do the walks that I want to. That's fine by me. I really don't care if there's that weird feeling once I reach a certain limit because that's around the same point where I would normally kind of turn back and wrap things up anyway. So I don't really care much about that. That's that's fine by me. And then finally, you know, in terms of all the dental stuff, there is a recovery for that, but that's not really the same thing, I would say, because these are supervised medical procedures and the recovery is expected. It's not some sort of unanticipated event or accident that you have to recover from. So it's like after I had all these oral surgeries done, it just doesn't seem like the recovery is the same because this is all supervised and this is what you're supposed to do. So that's what that comes down to. So again, I, I sincerely wish you the very best with your recovery. Uh, this is a short email from Pete in Pocatello, Idaho, who uh, sent in a little bit of everything, a shortwave reception report, song request for the broadcast, and also a question for the podcast. Uh, you said, my question, I'm wondering how much time you put into editing the show together. I've recently started a podcast of my own about writing, and I find I spend as much time editing it together as I actually do recording. It seems like I'm constantly having to cut out instances of stumbling over my own words. My show is nowhere near as long or well-made as your episodes, so I was wondering if this is something that improves with experience, or if this is similar for you. Wishing you all the best and hope you're staying well. So thank you, Pete, in Idaho for checking in. So how much time do I spend editing the show together? A lot, I will say that. I spend way more time editing this show together than I do recording it. So... A good example is, let's say, this show winds up being four hours long. We'll just say four hours, because that's been the standard length of most shows. Though, again, I know that this could be a little longer or a little shorter. Um, but let's go with four hours. When I edit the show together, I scrutinize it. And after I record the program... I re-listen to every single second of the show and I go over it with a microscope. So I will spend, oh gosh, at least probably 12 hours working on the show after I've recorded it, just 12 hours straight, because I just scrutinize it. And I mean, I go into everything. 
So that takes a long time, and I will say, yeah, it's tedious. You think I, I hate editing the show, but I want to. I want to give a quality program to anyone out there who takes the time to tune in. So to me, it's worth it to do that because again, I want to just give you a good show. So I'm gonna really put in the the time and effort uh, into making sure that at least to the best of my abilities, that's what you get. I know there are still a few mistakes here and there, but I try to take care of what I can. And, uh, yeah, it certainly is a tedious process, and it hasn't gotten... It doesn't get any easier in terms of time. It gets easier in terms of being able to make whatever edits you want to. It gets easier there. But... In terms of the time it takes to edit... It doesn't really get much quicker, but I think it will be different for everyone. Like, sometimes you can look and you can, you know, you can say, well, I don't think I really made any mistakes here, so I'll just let this go. That's fine, you know. This, my strategy is to really scrutinize everything again, and that's why it takes so much time. But different people will say, yeah, I think it's all right. I'm just going to let this go. I don't think I made any huge errors in the 45 minutes I talked for, so I'll just, I don't need to really scrutinize this terribly so it's just a different strategy and you just have to do what works best for you and i think you yourself know that better than anyone else so thank you for your email oliver is checking in says hello i'm a long time listener loved the night walk back in the days sorry for my english i'm a french canadian don't know let me reread this hold on don't know if you've responded to something similar, but here is my question for the show. What are your thoughts on electric vehicles, uh, such as the Tesla Motor Company and Elon Musk? So thank you for your question. Uh, now, certainly this is kind of treading into dangerous waters, but honestly, I don't really care anymore. Who cares, right? Electric cars, Tesla and Elon Musk. Uh, electric cars, I I think they're a good thing. I don't have a problem with them at all. Uh, personally, I think at this point in time, considering the fact that charging stations and all that sort of stuff is still not everywhere, um, I would, if I had to choose, I would still prefer some sort of hybrid that still goes off of gasoline uh, if I want to be either for longer trips or in more remote areas, so you don't have to constantly worry about finding some sort of charging station and being dependent on that. Uh, Tesla cars are interesting. I mean, they certainly... Everyone says that they go pretty fast and that they're fun to drive and um, all that. I don't really like how it's just one big screen, though. I mean, I really, really don't like that, and I that's a deal breaker to me. Um, something unnerving about that concept and it, I don't know, I just don't like that. So certainly has some interesting things, but I guess I'm just not part of the club that where it's like, you know, Teslas are the best car ever and everyone should have one, etc. I mean, I'm just not one of those people. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I'm not part of the club of people where I imagine a lot of people who listen to this show are. I just don't like how some folks have this godlike worship 
of Elon Musk, like he is the second coming of Christ or something. And, uh, you know, like he's the smartest person in the world and he's a, a genius and he can do no wrong and he's the coolest guy ever, you know. He's a CEO and he certainly has a good mind. I appreciate SpaceX. It's done a lot for the space program. And he certainly has done some good things, but I don't know. Is he really all that? I mean, I can really start getting into discussions, in my opinion, about CEOs and all that, but I'm going to save it for another day. So, I mean, my view is just, you know, don't hate him. I don't love him either. He's just, it's like a neutral view. People just have to understand that he is not, you know, he's not a normal guy. And the same goes for all of the elites. Uh, you know, you have this certain, I feel, class and group of people. Now, I'm talking the ultra-wealthy, you know, like the billionaires. And I truly believe this, and there's only so much I can say... But I mean, I truly believe this, and I've, I've seen it, I've seen them say it. It comes out of their own mouth, in plain sight. You see it in writing, it's demonstrated through actions. I honestly believe that this group of people, they have certain agendas, and they have certain views, and ideas, and purported, quote, goals, unquote, for humanity, that... Eh, I don't know how happy people would be about that. So that's all that I have to say in that regard. Okay, this one comes in from MJ in Wyoming. And I would like to first thank you most sincerely for your kind words. You say... I wonder if you'd entertain me and perhaps other listeners on the topic of birds. I never paid much attention to all the birds around me until a brilliant red-tailed hawk sat atop a massive tree in the park near my house in southeastern Wyoming. For some reason, I just never thought such birds would be in a park in town, but rather in the mountains about 30 minutes away. It's a silly thought, I know, because birds can go most anywhere they'd like. Well, after that magnificent sight, I remembered to simply look up, and I began to notice more birds like sharp-shinned hawks, great blue heron, and turkey vultures, even smaller birds like the feisty house wren, the belted kingfisher, nuthatches, and woodpeckers of all kinds. Now I am a lover of all birds. Do you enjoy birds? What is the most interesting bird you have seen? Any and all thoughts on birds you have would be fun to hear. Thank you once more for bringing calmness, sophistication, passion, intent, and important conversation to the table. Your work is valuable. Sincerely, MJ in Wyoming. Well, thank you, sir, for writing in. Now, allow me to preface this by saying I, I am no ornithologist. So, my understanding, at least of the varying types of birds, 
is limited at best, especially birds in Florida. Um, but I do like birds. I've always liked them. I, especially up in New York, had a bird feeder and always took great pleasure in watching all the little birds uh, feed on the little seeds and go about their business. And it was just so much fun to watch them. And uh, that's really been a lifelong interest. I, I do enjoy watching birds myself. They are incredible creatures. And it's fascinating here in Florida to see a whole new diverse uh, variety of birds. The, you know, the birds whose names that at least I know, again, I'm not as, I'm not very familiar with the birds in Florida. I see so many, but I don't know the names for them. But I'd say it's just the standard, you know, woodland fauna, as one would say. You know, so cardinals, morning doves, sparrows, nuthatches, blue jays, woodpeckers, various wrens, dark-eyed juncos, red-winged blackbirds, the uh, cursed grackles that would show up in these giant packs of hundreds and hundreds of birds and would uh, cause problems for all the others. And there were a few others, too, again, whose names escape me at the moment. Uh, here in Florida, there are all different sorts of birds and, uh, you know, avian specimens, anyway. Well, let's look. Let's look and let's see if any of these are familiar. Well, down here I see a lot of cranes, especially the sandhill crane. That's always a very common sight. The, uh... And the sandhill crane, that's a common one. I see plenty of blue jays. I see mockingbirds. I have seen a heron. All sorts of ducks. So many different types of ducks. There's one that I see a lot. Let's try and find it. Muscovy ducks? see those, plenty of them. Pretty sure I saw an egret the other day. Um, I know I've seen pelicans also. On occasion I will see a limpkin. That creature, it's interesting, but boy does it make a lot of noise. And I've also seen peacocks. And I even saw one once all sprawled out, you know, on full display. Those are certainly interesting, <laughs> interesting creatures also. So it's fun to see the difference, though, between the variety of birds further north and uh, further south, but fascinating nonetheless. Matt from Kent, England, is writing in next uh, with, uh, let's see, a few anecdotes and a question. Right now, it's a little past midnight over here. I'm writing while listening to your latest show on Spotify and really enjoying it as usual. The first time I ever tuned to VORW was on SoundCloud in late 2016 or early 2017. I'd have to assume it was late, uh, sorry, early 2017, because I think that's when I first started it on SoundCloud. If memory serves correctly, was very pleased when you read out some of my brief correspondence then. If I'm truly honest, I haven't been a regular listener for all of that time, having dipped in and out, 
Lately, however, I've been following each episode of your show as they come out, and really enjoyed the content and interesting discussions. I wanted to thank you for your hard work in making this podcast and share what it means to me. About six weeks ago, I was knocked from my bicycle by a speeding driver who didn't stop to check on me. I broke my collarbone and three fingers, which has caused a lot of pain and exacerbated my anxiety, meaning sleepless nights for me. For some reason, on one night where I struggled to get off to bed, I remembered your show and turned to an old episode, and it was on not giving up. For the first 15 minutes or so, I was captivated and really resonated with a lot of what you said. Shortly thereafter, I forgot about my pain and worries and was able to doze off. As I've been healing, I've been unable to do many of my usual hobbies. I found it very enjoyable to go on walks and listen to your show, so please know that I'm not saying that your show is solely one I listen to to help me sleep, and I actively enjoy following it. Well, to interject, thank you. But I really don't care if you only use it to go to sleep. It doesn't... There's no... I just do this show to do it. I don't do it for fame. I don't do it for financial incentive. Uh, I just do the show to do it. And uh, it's it's none of my business what listeners want to do with the broadcast once it's out. It's, you know, for a mass audience. And uh, you don't have to sit there and listen a certain way or try to get a certain thing out of it. You know, if you just want to listen to it as background noise, that's fine. If you want to intentionally listen, you can do that too. Or if you just want to listen, drift off to sleep, fine by me. So no worries there. You did have a question, and also I want to say I wish you the best of luck with your recovery. It sounds like things are certainly getting on the right track. Hopefully they shall continue that way, and uh, you'll be back to normal in no time. So your question, is there anything which you turn to when you struggle with anxiety or with getting to sleep? On radio, TV, YouTube, for instance, or anything else? Thanks again, and take care, Matt, from Kent, England. So thank you, Matt, again, for your kind words and question. Well, (laughs) I know that (laughs) this isn't the answer that some people would want, um, but it's the honest answer. Oh, I know, I could sit there and I could say, yeah, yeah, you know, you could give the answer that sounds best on paper, but isn't the truth, right? You could sit there and I could say, oh, yeah, you know, Uh, ASMR is great, and uh, I enjoy it when they tap their fingers or something like that, and yeah, that sounds better, Um, but my honest answer is no, I I don't tune or watch or do anything because nothing works, so I just kind of sit there, deal with it, and uh, just do what I normally do, you know, read, listen to music, um manage the YouTube or any of that sort of stuff until I get tired enough to finally try to fall asleep. But there's nothing that works for me. There's nothing that, oh yeah, you know, just do this, just watch this, just listen to this, tune to this, and it'll help. It doesn't, nothing ever has. And I've tried, I've tried many, many things, but it just doesn't work. It's just, I guess it's just the way that it is. So we have there.
All right, this next email comes in from Anne in France. Hello, sir. Hope you're doing well. Uh, a few questions. Regarding your merchandise, have you considered making pins or badges? These are coming back into fashion, plus they are affordable and nice items. I'm sure your fans would love them, as they may be more discreet than a whole t-shirt or sweater. So thank you for your question there. Now that's something that I will have to check, because here's how the merchandise works. Even though I do have a degree of creative control, the site that I use it used to be called Teespring, but I think they changed the name. I think it's just called Spring or something like that. <laughs> You'd think I would know this, but I don't. I know they changed the name, though. Anyway, what the provider does is they say, we are only able to offer, you know, t-shirts and bags and posters and coffee mugs, etc. And a small list of other things that you can make into merchandise. Um, but unfortunately, it's not like I could just, with them, say, oh, I want to have <laughs> a lampshade with uh, my face on it. God, how awful that would be. Or I can't say, oh, I want a necktie or this. That. You know, it's just it has to be on the list of items that are approved and that they're able to work with. I don't know if pins are, um, but if I do find out that they are, I'll certainly uh, try to work with them and, and get one made. I like that, though. It's minimalistic. It's nice. It's not gaudy. It's not overly in-your-face. And uh, I like it. So if I, I will tell you this. I will promise you this. If the option is there to make them, I will. You better believe I will, because that's a good idea, and I like it. So, again, if it's available and you see it, you could thank yourself for that, because I'll do it. So... I will check, and I'll see what I can do. I can't make any promises, because I don't know if they offer it, but again, if they do, uh, I will expand to that. Second, you say, regarding fast food in the United States, do you have kebabs? Or as it is pronounced in other areas, kebabs. In France, you have at least one kebab per city. They are from Greece slash Turkey. You could say they are some kind of tacos, even though sometimes the garnish is just served on a plate. They are pretty cheap and come with quite good quality ingredients, affordable for everyone, talking about price. But also, uh, in terms of beliefs, the meat is usually halal. If you have not tried them, I would recommend it. If you want a taste and you're able to find a kebab, I highly recommend it. I have had kebabs in the past. <laughs> it's funny, even though I know I'm in the U.S. and I should use the Americanized pronunciation, when I'm speaking, it automatically just comes out naturally as kebab. Anyway, it's for another day. I don't know, it's just harder for me to say kebab. It, it just comes out so easy as kebab. Anyway, <laughs> you know, tomato-tomato type of stuff. I have had them. I've had them a number of times in the past. And, uh, of course, it does come down to the establishment serving them. But all the ones that I have had uh, were good. And I can't complain, you know? Quality ingredients, as you suggested. An enjoyable experience. And, uh, no, they're not bad at all. They're not bad at all. I've had them. 
And uh, I don't know if there are any chains that serve them, though. It's more of like a local type of establishment that I think does it here in the United States. Though that might just be how it all is. I'm not quite sure. But yes, I've had them. And finally, you have a question, as you said, regarding a personal YouTube project. I want to be a writer, but I was also raised by my grandmother, who used to tell me oral stories that were never written. I usually have strange dreams that are actually quite long, with some kind of built plot. I've been writing them down on notebooks as much as I can when I remember them after waking up. Here's my question. Do you think it might interest anyone if I created a YouTube channel to tell my dreams, uh, like a sort of audiobook? I know the feeling of being told an interesting story, so I came up with this idea. My dreams sometimes involve zombies, cinematic landscapes, horror stories, etc. Uh, so to interject, I certainly encourage you to do so. I will say this in this advice I give to anyone aspiring to create content on YouTube, but really I would assume this goes for any social media platform. Do it because you have the passion to do it. Success is never guaranteed. I really encourage you, because it really should not be too much of an endeavor. It depends on what you want to do, and how far you want to take it. If you just want to tell the stories, all you need is really a microphone, or a camera, whatever it is you're comfortable with. If you want to include illustrations, the complexity is your choice. But this is something that does not need to break the bank. So this is an idea that could certainly be executed without having to do a lot. It's not like you're saying, you know, I want to do very expensive uh, travel videos and go here, here, and here all over the world, and I'll be spending $10,000 a month on this, but I hope that I get, I'm able to get lucky and get famous on YouTube and get a lot of ad revenue and from the views, and I'm going to get a sponsorship from this company, and it's going to pay for itself. Yeah, I have no subscribers right now, but I'm going to do this, and it's going to work. That's idiotic and ridiculous, and I would not advise someone to do that. So my advice, uh, quite frankly, is to go for it. You know, tell the story, record it again, either on video or audio, and see how you feel about it. And if you enjoy doing it and you're comfortable uploading it, I encourage you to do so. Views, especially in large quantities, are never, never guaranteed, but it's how you feel making it that's most important. And if you found that being there at the microphone and telling these stories is just an awful lot of fun, and you enjoy doing this, then keep it up. I truly believe that, at least to some extent, that passion will shine through and viewers kind of searching around for videos of this nature will be able to tell that you're doing this because you want to do it. And uh, I think it will show. It may not amass a large audience, but I think there will be, there will be viewers, there will be listeners, even if it's not a ton. 
even if it's just a small handful, don't lose sight of the small numbers, and especially don't lose sight of it if this is something that you enjoy doing. You know, that's why I started the YouTube and kept it up. I I really didn't think that anyone was really going to sit there and watch some kid in a suit talk about the energy drinks after I filmed the first review, and especially the second one. It just felt... It was just so much fun to me. I could feel it, you know, this physical embodiment. How much fun it was to be there at the camera, something I had never done before, but kind of have my own little show, even if it's just for, you know, seven to ten minutes, where I can review this product and tell a couple jokes and have a little bit of fun, and it was just great. And it was for that reason, because it was something that I, I really liked and continued to enjoy doing, why I kept it up. And any sort of large audience came years later. You know, the YouTube channel only reached 50,000 subscribers after I had been doing this for five years straight. So I encourage you to give it a try. Give it a shot. And also, don't be upset if, you know, you have this idea and it sounds good and it sounds fun, but when it's time to execute the idea, you're there at the camera or at the microphone and you're trying to do it and it's just not as enjoyable as you thought it was going to be. Don't be upset by that. You don't know until you try. And that's why I say this is the importance of giving this a shot. So I, I encourage you to give it a try. Make that video. See what happens. And, uh, and just go from there. But that's my advice anyway. And uh, finally... I sincerely thank you for the fan art. I liked it. I enjoyed it, and it didn't offend me in the least. I like it, so uh, not to worry there. Thank you for your email. All right, Maddie is checking in. Says, I love the content. I've been watching your YouTube channel since 2017, and the podcast since 2019. I'm getting my wisdom teeth removed in a month and have a lot of anxiety surrounding it. I opted not to get any sedatives. I know that is ironic, considering the purpose of sedatives to e is to ease anxiety, but it gives me even more anxiety uh, thinking that I will be knocked out during the procedure as I lack control in that situation. Now, I know you have talked about uh, your dental procedures before, and I thought you would, write, uh, you would be the right person to ask if you have any tips on procedures that involve getting teeth removed. I've never had any issues with my teeth previously, so going to the dentist always just involved a quick cleaning and that was it. Because of that, I never truly understood anxiety concerning the dentist until I was told my wisdom teeth needed to be removed. Alright, so I'm going to talk about this for a little bit. Now some listeners, you know, I see the comments every now and then, don't talk about the teeth, I hate hearing about it. Well, if you're listening online, just skip ahead if you don't like it, because this is my show, and I want to answer the emails that I want to answer. And, uh, I know that the dental anxieties can really be... Oh, I know they could eat us alive. I mean, I know it. I've had the dental anxieties, and it's just awful sometimes. Uh, so I'll just give you my tips, and 
just what I can say from personal experience, because granted I had two teeth removed at the same time, both of them were molars, one of which, you know, they were on different sides of the mouth. So my left side and my right side were simultaneously out of commission. Now this might not be the same for you because I know wisdom teeth, their removal is a little different than molars, but really it's the same thing. I'll just give you my experience and I'll tell you the day of, the succeeding days, etc., and uh, how it was for me. Evidently I made a full recovery, so it's fine. You know, no complications. Uh, in terms of your choice not to have any sedatives, I understand it. I know it's an individual thing. I know that some people are comfortable with getting put under and some aren't. And that's understandable, so I, I get it. As for me, in terms of my philosophy and all of that, I know that I wouldn't that I don't have any control over the situation, but, you know, in terms of my views of life and death and all of that, it's just, it'll be when it is, you know? It just is what it is, so that's just why it's not something that I really... doesn't get to me, and I don't really have those worries, but it's different for everyone else, I get it, and that's fine. So, when it comes down to the procedure itself, even though I was knocked out for my procedure. This is what I, I researched this so extensively that I have it memorized. So what they're going to do, most likely, is they're going to numb you up. You know, they'll take the needle and all that, and they'll give you the shots of the, uh, I believe, lidocaine solution. Everyone thinks it's Novocaine, but they don't even use that stuff anymore. It's usually lidocaine. And... They'll probably give you a couple shots, let it sink in for a bit so you won't feel a thing. I mean, you're going to be so numbed up, it's not going to hurt one single bit, believe me. And I've had many procedures done. So, you know, I actually just had a root canal done two days ago. I still, there's still some soreness from it all, but I had the procedure done and it was fine. They numb you up. They numb you up good. You're not going to be able to feel the thing. So don't worry about the pain as as the procedure is happening. They make sure that you're going to be taken care of and you'll be fine. Sometimes in movies and all that, you know, they dramatize tooth extractions and you see the guy with the, the pliers ripping it out. The guy, ah, you know, he's screaming and squirming around. That's for the movies. You know, they do that for dramatic effect. Now, granted, you know, the CIA, when they're torturing people, of course, they're not going to give you a shot of, of lidocaine or anything. They're just going to rip the thing out if they need to. But that's, you know, that's a whole different thing. They're not going to do that to you. So number one, don't worry about the pain of the procedure. You're not going to feel any pain. Uh, what you will feel, from what I have heard... Uh, from my research and also from conferring with individuals who have gotten teeth extracted and have been awake for the procedure, uh, chances are what you'll just feel is a little bit of pressure on the tooth as it's being extracted, but it's nothing unbearable. It doesn't last for a long time at all. The thing is so numbed up, you're just going to feel the pressure and that's it. And it's, it's no big deal. 
uh, so don't worry in regards to that either. Now, once the procedure is completed, the thing that you're going to have to remember and the thing that you're going to have to make sure of for the next, I'd say, week or two even, this is the most integral part of the entire thing. All right? You can really forget everything else, but if there's one thing you have to remember, remember this. The blood clot. That blood clot is the most important thing in terms of the healing process, making sure it heals correctly, making sure it heals smoothly. That blood clot, you know, that is the most important thing. So don't forget about that and follow these steps to make sure that that blood clot is preserved, because if it's not, then bad things might happen. And we don't want that. But it's not difficult. I did it, I, I managed, and it was okay. So, you know, you have to remember, once they, they extract the teeth, you have the socket, you know, because the tooth is there in the socket, right? That's what keeps it in place. Now it's gone, so there's this empty hole where the tooth was. And of course, for successful healing, that hole needs to close up, and that'll be that, right? You can't just have this open pit, so it'll, it'll have to heal. And I guess what I'm trying to say, in order for this to heal properly, there needs to be the blood clot. Because once the tooth is extracted, the socket will fill with blood, you know, from bleeding, because the tooth just got extracted, and that blood will coagulate. And then that coagulated blood will be the blood clot. And then underneath that, the healing begins and everything starts getting back to normal. But you need that blood clot there in order for this to take place and it will heal correctly. So once the teeth are extracted, the first thing that you're going to have to do is they're going to probably tell you, they'll put some gauze in your mouth and they're going to tell you, bite down on it. You know, bite down on that gauze and keep it there in place because that's to make sure the blood clot forms and is kind of packed into where it needs to be. So you have to bite down on this gauze for a while for maybe however long it is. In my case, after I had the teeth removed, I awoke with, I actually woke up from the uh, anesthetic as they were putting the gauze in my mouth. And they told me to bite down on it and keep biting down all the way till I get home, which was probably for about an hour. So that's how long I bit down on that gauze for. But by the time you take it out, it's already, the blood is pretty much coagulated. It's where it needs to be. And you need to take the gauze and, you know, dispose of it accordingly. Now, the most important thing after that, once that blood clot is formed, you need to keep it in place. I mean, you have to. That is essential in terms of your successful recovery. What you have to do is you have to avoid really three major things. Number one, for probably a week or two, whatever you do, don't use a straw. Don't drink anything out of a straw. Don't drink water out of a straw. Don't drink a smoothie out of a straw. 
don't drink a milkshake out of a straw, don't drink coffee, don't drink anything out of a straw. Some people say, well, guess I could I, I, I guess I could kind of understand not drinking like a, a thick milkshake or something, right, because you're really sucking on it, but water, I mean, come on, it just comes right in. It, what, you're telling me I can't do that? No, not at all. Because when you suck through the straw that creates essentially a sort of vacuum in your mouth, and you know what it's going to do? It's going to pop the blood clot right out. And that coagulated blood clot is going to pop out of the socket. It's going to expose the socket. And uh, we'll get into the bad things that could happen in a minute. Next thing that you can't do, if you're a smoker, no cigarettes. Or any of that. Probably not even a vape or any of that stuff. Um, again, you know, think of it this way, because you're sucking and it, it's the same thing as with the straw. And the third thing to avoid is do not chew directly on, you know, where the, uh, the extraction site is, okay? With that, it's highly recommended that you just be very, very gentle, almost as gentle as possible uh, with the extraction sites and where, you know, where they are. Now, for some people, it's easy, because let's say you just got a tooth on one side removed. Oh, you just eat on the other side of your mouth and eat soft foods. Well, that's easy. In my case, I had two molars in different areas of the mouth. One was further to the front than the other, on opposite sides. My entire mouth was out of commission. So what did I have to do? I had to eat, <laughs> I had to eat baby food and jello, you know, with a spoon for a good probably two weeks, and, uh, you know, I just had to sip on water and anything else, uh, and that's what I had to do. You just have to deal with it. Now, eventually, you get used to it, but I know it sometimes isn't fun, and you want to eat what you, what you normally eat, and it's no fun to eat the soft foods, but again, this is necessary for recovery, successful recovery. I make the blood clot, the damned blood clot. Well, what do you... Why is it so important? What happens then if the blood clot comes out? Well, not only does it hinder recovery, but that's where the possibility of a thing called dry socket comes in. And dry socket occurs because now that the blood clot is out, the socket starts to get a little dry, as they say. But most importantly, at the very bottom of the socket is exposed bone, and nerve, and it is extremely, extremely sensitive. And with the blood clot gone, as air begins to penetrate that area now, and as other things begin to get in there, be that debris, water, anything, the pain that will occur will be probably some of the most excruciating pain you've ever had in your entire life. And almost everyone who has uh, experienced dry socket can corroborate that statement. And I've seen videos of folks who actually have to go to the ER because the pain is just that bad and they just need anything to try to stop it and make it better. Now, sometimes you're not perfect. Sometimes this will just happen. We try to do everything right, but we, we mess up sometime. All right, that happens. Lots of people get dry sockets. It's, you know, fairly rare, but it happens. It happens a lot. And uh, 
Sometimes it's no fault of your own. Sometimes it is. Either way, let's say that it does happen. You're going to have to call the dentist immediately, and they'll get you in quick. I mean, they'll probably get you in the same day. And what they're going to have to do then is they're going to have to kind of retreat the socket. They'll give you something for the pain. They'll probably, at least from my recollection, they'll probably pack it with, uh, I think, huge and all, which will really help. And then they'll have to form a new blood clot. It's kind of like you have to start from scratch, but that's what they usually do, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure, from my research anyway. Um, but of course, this is one of those things, it's better to avoid it if you can. When I had the extractions, I thankfully avoided dry socket and uh, never had to deal with that. In terms of pain and uh, all of that, the pain in my case was mild to moderate, but never severe. Um, it was persistent at times, but it got better pretty quickly. So that's from what I can say, from my experience. They might give you something for the pain. Um, in my case, they recommended not only, of course, to take, I think it was acetaminophen, or maybe it was ibuprofen, but I'm pretty sure it was acetaminophen, in large quantities. And in addition to that, they did prescribe uh, an opioid pain reliever as well. Um, but there were specific instructions with that, you know, of course, not to overdo it. Uh, in my case, it was fine. You know, opioids, it is one of those things that you know, some people do get hooked on them. But at the same time, opioids, it cannot be refuted, in my opinion, that in some instances... Uh, they certainly do have their necessities. But, you know, just be responsible with it. Don't just sit there and say, oh, I'm going to take them all, right, because this really hurts. Don't do that. What I did the first day, and this wasn't even in the directions, but I took the whole one as prescribed. But then even the second day, I cut them in half and only took the halves and uh, that was fine I mean that was that was fine no problems there and then after a few days I just moved exclusively to the um, you know to the regular over-the-counter pain relievers and that was all good also let's see I don't know if it'll be in your case. In my case, they prescribed me an antibiotic to prevent infection. If you are prescribed an antibiotic, take them exactly as prescribed and don't stop taking them until you've taken them all. That's just to make sure that it works. That's what you have to do. Uh, finally, again, things will start getting back to normal pretty quickly. Um, for me, it took about two weeks or so. The one thing, and this might be different for you, I've, I've heard that it's different for other people. In my case, my speaking abilities were greatly hindered early on. And for the first about week and a half, when I spoke, it sounded as though I had a fist in my mouth. So, I remember once there was someone who was asking, 
I'm going to have a tooth removed on Tuesday, and I work at a, a call center, you know, doing customer service stuff, and I want to try to be back to work on Wednesday. You think I'll sound all right on the phones? Uh, chances are that's not going to be possible. Uh, so be aware that your voice may be, again, it's going to sound like you've got a fist in your mouth for a couple days, but the amount of time that takes to abate is different person to person. Some people, they're fine in two days. Others, it takes a week. In my case, it took a week and a half. But it does get better. You know, tooth extractions, they happen. Most people, at least in terms of wisdom teeth, have to deal with it, go through it. And uh, it's not the end of the world. It's a procedure. It's a minor surgery. But be responsible, be smart, give yourself time to rest, just take it easy. I think you'll be all right. So thank you for that question. All right, now on to uh, another question that you had. I wanted to discuss foraging. In my opinion, foraging and knowing which types of plants are edible is an incredibly useful skill to have. I believe that we as humans are disconnected from nature and foraging as well as growing your own food can help reestablish your connection with nature. I also think it's important to be self-sustainable and not rely too heavily on a global food supply chain, as I have a grim outlook on the future in terms of global warming worsening. I was wondering what your take on this would be. Do you think finding slash growing food on your own is an important skill to have, or do you think supermarket chains are reliable, even through potential instability? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so thank you for that question. Now, I, th I think that foraging and all of that is incredibly, incredibly important, and it's multifaceted. That's not to say that you need to be some sort of naturalist and know every single thing, but knowing even some of the basics as to what is edible, what isn't edible, uh, can be life-saving. Number one, of course, if you're out hiking and you're out in the woods and you get lost and it turns into a duration event. Sometimes that can be almost a life-saving decision. So yes, that is incredibly important in that circumstance. But also I think it is important uh, in terms of, well, let's say there is damage on infrastructure, whatever that is. Now me personally, I think the two most likely things to worry about are natural disasters, things that perhaps will all be temporarily, um, you know, disable infrastructure, at least to varying degrees, you should at least be ready just in case. And the second thing is, you don't really know what the future holds in terms of the government and government control, what might seem absolutely insane now will be considered normal, if not acceptable, a couple decades from now. I don't know, I just, I fear that this country, it's going to get to a point where it's going to be acceptable to kick people out of society completely. And it's like, you're going to be left to rot. You're going to have to go do your own thing now. You know, I don't know. I can just see that happening one day. I know it sounds preposterous now, but... There's a lot of things that have sounded crazy that have come to pass, so... I don't know. I can just see that happening one day. You already see it online. I mean... 
So who's to say that it's not going to happen in the so-called real world one day? And also, I agree with you that it's also just nice to be able to reestablish one's connection uh, with nature. So that that also, that's just an added bonus, you know, that's like the cherry on top. But yeah, I think it's just a perfectly reasonable and uh, applicable skill. And finally, uh, you say, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the Denver International Airport. I've never been there myself, but I've heard a lot about it. First off, the murals and the art in the airport are extremely macabre with apocalyptic imagery. I'd recommend looking up images if you haven't seen it, but one mural in particular depicts a soldier holding a sword up to a white dove with what looks like mothers crying while holding their dying children in the background. I believe this mural in particular was taken down, although the giant horse statue with ominous glowing red eyes nicknamed Lucifer remains outside of the airport to welcome visitors. Part of this horse statue actually fell onto the artist while he was creating it, which caused his death. That fact makes this already ominous-looking horse statue even creepier. The airport went $2 billion over budget in its construction and took 16 months longer to build than anticipated. There's also a complex network of tunnels beneath the airport that is supposed to be a baggage handling system that never ended up being used. The creepy imagery, the art, the tunnels, the delay in construction, and billions spent over budget have cultivated a number of conspiracy theories surrounding the airport. The main one is that the elite plan to use the underground tunnels as bunkers in the event of an apocalypse. I'm not sure if I believe it, but it's definitely interesting to consider. Best regards, Maddie from North Carolina. So thank you for your email and questions, a lot of good ones. So the Denver airport. Number one, it's sketchy. <laughs> it is sketchy. I mean, those murals and everything. I really believe this. Um, and I just say this from my own observations that I think... Sometimes I really think that all of this stuff is like one big joke. And some of the powers that be kind of just put this stuff there to just laugh at us, honestly. It's like, I honestly think just knowing how humanity is and how people are on a small scale, knowing how a lot of the people in the high places perhaps at least are perceived, I don't see why this would be any different on a large scale, but people are like, you know, look at this, I'm being so obvious about this, you people aren't even, it's not, you're not even putting two and two together, look, I'm just putting this right in front of your face and you're so blind, you're not even seeing it, you know, you get that on small levels, but I don't know, who's to say that you know, major individuals or governments or whatever don't do that same type of stuff as like some sort of joke on the populace, right? Who, who's to say they don't do that? I don't know. Not all of them do, I don't think, but some things are just interesting. Now, whether this was just the designer of the airport that just had an interest in the macabre, maybe that was just it. Maybe the people who made the airport just wanted to kind of do this to say, yeah, I'm sick of all the boring airport art, so let's just 
do something different here. Maybe there is an inside joke among the people who made the airport where it's like, let's just make these apocalyptic-looking murals to, you know, give these people all these years later something to talk about and try and figure out why it's there when really we just did it for that reason to kind of troll you. Uh, or maybe there is more to it. Maybe, you know, there are legitimate messages there and it's just kind of going along with that attitude uh, where it's just like, look at this, you fools. It's right here in front of your face the whole time and you're just ignoring it. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities, though. Chances are it's just an airport. And while I personally do believe that I think there are bunkers out there and hidden underground facilities and, you know, I think there are underground facilities not only used by the government that are kept secret, but also underground facilities that are probably built maybe by various elites, either for shelter or for other activities, right? I don't think that they're commonplace, but I am certain that a number of those exist here and there. Not a ton. Very, very few. But I just don't think that there would be something like that in such plain sight. I think certain, you know, certain things could, again, be kind of like as a joke almost, like those murals or whatever, but I don't think they would put the whole facility right there in this airport that so many people use. I, it just seems like it's just too much of a liability to me. But again, anyone who wants to debate those underground systems, and I mean, look at Mount Weather, you know, that exists. And if that facility exists and is capable of existing, then I, I suspect that there are more like it. So these things aren't science fiction, you know, they, they are out there, they really exist. I just think there are a couple more, right? That just seems completely reasonable to me. And, uh, you know, that's what you have there. Now, I remember a couple years ago, I was listening late at night, there was some conspiracy broadcast on the shortwave, and it was around like 2 a.m. and I was going for a night walk and I tuned it in and it was interesting. I was listening the whole time uh, where they were talking about underground tunnels and all that sort of stuff. Now, what they claimed in the broadcast was that, and I don't believe this, I think someone would have discovered it by now or there would have been a uh, whistleblower or something because we know how deceitful so many individuals are. Someone would have had to come forward by now if this was real, and it just doesn't seem practical to me. Uh, they were claiming that, right, there are underground facilities, which I agree with, but there are massive underground tunnels spanning the entire length of the country that have these underground highways akin to the United States interstate system, these massive cross-country underground interstate highways that are used for, you know, arms shipments and moving uh, troops and all sorts of logistics undercover, and that they have their own truck drivers and everything who drive across the country and do this sort of stuff underground, Honestly, that'd be a kind of cool job to just drive in, in these tunnels all day, but I don't think that's real. And it's all connected to the Denver International Airport, which is like their base of operations, 
and uh, they just seemed a bit far-fetched for me, you know. I, I do think a lot of conspiracies have validity, but, you know, some of them are just too... I just don't see the, any sort of way that could be. Um, you know, I've heard that the uh, the Denver International Airport is like some sort of base for people like me, you know, human alien hybrids to hang out. Again, I just don't think that's the case or that there's, you know, a nest of lizard people underneath that, which again, I've just never really... The whole reptilian conspiracy has never really made sense to me. I, I don't know. Either way, I mean, I like reptiles. Oh, there you are, you're outing yourself as one of them, right? But, no, I like reptiles and amphibians. As a matter of fact, there's a couple lizards that... I welcome them. When I'm outside, they kind of make their way into the screened-in area. And I don't care, they have a little way to come in and come out, and I just let them. It's fine, they could live in there if they want. I like watching them anyway, so... I don't know, maybe that means I am a lizard person. No, I, I kid. I, I just don't think that there is, like, again, some sort of nest where our reptilian overlords uh, reside under the Denver airport. Yeah, it's an interesting... It's an interesting place, and there's some shady things about it, but... If I had to guess... I think it's just a weird airport. And not anything more than that, because it just... That, that's just my take. But I might be wrong, so there you go. Thanks for your email. Uh, Max, in Germany. One question I think I'll also have to answer off the air, but I will give you an answer. And uh, otherwise I will talk about what you mentioned. Uh, you said, I've been following the YouTube channel for a long time now, but as I got more and more into listening to podcasts, I've fallen in love with the VORW. I think of you as a person are a true phenomenon in a positive way, and your podcast is no different. Not sure what it is, but it has something special to it that has become very rare in the modern time. Maybe your voice, or the length of the podcast, your love for shortwave radio, or just the fact that you're going into detail with every single user email. I don't know, but I just want to say uh, that I really like your podcast, and you have to keep going. This is my first time writing in, so I'm going to let out a mixed bag of thoughts, which I was thinking about the last time. To start a TV show recommendation... I've heard in one of the podcast episodes that you like the YouTube channel of Bob Gimlin and the whole Bigfoot mystery in general. To interject, I still do. Um, one thing that I've been doing to occupy time, I've been going on the uh, BFRO website, that's the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, uh, some people will say their website is a little dated, but I don't care. It's, that's fine by me. And what I like to do is I go to the left, and there's a tab that says Reports Added Recently, and I read the recent Bigfoot encounters, and that's interesting. Um, again, regardless of validity, I like it. And you can go into Archived, Bigfoot Reports, and you could search any county in the country and uh, see if there's anything close to home, but I like doing that. It's just fun for me. So I, st I still like that Bigfoot stuff. Anyway, you continue. Uh, therefore, I... 
I think I've found the perfect TV show for you and maybe some of your fans, too. It's called... <laughs> it's called Mountain Monsters. Maybe you've already heard of it. I don't know how popular the show is in the U.S., but here in Germany, only a very few people know about it. To describe the show in one sentence, it's basically a bunch of old men with guns and huge beards who run around in the forest at night screaming and searching for Bigfoots. You can imagine them as the most cliché hillbillies. They call themselves the Ames Team, which is short for Appalachian Investigators of Mysterious Sightings. It's obvious that the show is completely faked and that every Bigfoot encounter didn't really happen. But if you don't take it seriously, it's great entertainment. I would call it trash TV at its best and just pure comedy. I've almost watched every episode of it by now. In the first two seasons, the episodes weren't really connected, but it was still a great way to watch the Ames team hunt all kinds of Bigfoots and cryptids. For example, every possible Bigfoot, the Chupacabra, the Werewolf, or even the Mothman. And after that, the show started to have a real storyline, and the latest story actually had some very high-quality episodes, some of them even reaching into the horror and psycho genre, but for that you'll have to see it yourself. Overall, the show has a special place in my heart, and I can warmly recommend it. So to interject, I have heard of the show, and I watched it for a little bit back in 2016-2017. Uh, and I didn't know it was still going, so I will have to check out some of those newer episodes with a, a bit of a plot and storyline, because that sounds interesting. So, uh, I'll certainly have to check that out. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the Mountain Monsters, the first time I ever saw it was in early 2016, just scanning around through the, uh, channels, and I happened to catch it mid-episode. Now, even then, I liked watching a lot of those Bigfoot shows, you know, even like, um... Oh, I don't know what it was. It was with the BFRO, where they searched for, um... You know, the Bigfoots, and they did the investigations in the woods and all that sort of stuff. But... I tuned into this show not knowing it was fake at first, because I'd never heard of it before. And I'm seeing all these, like you said, these old hillbillies with their shotguns and their giant beards running around and screaming and tripping over each other in the middle of the woods, all going crazy, and I couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, what the heck is this? And, you know, after a little bit of research, of course, I found out, yeah, it's one of those fake shows. But that did not stop it from being entertaining, because, boy, <laughs> it's like, you know, they play it up so much where it is so over the top. That it's just hilarious, and the fact that these guys are able to, they're able to fit into their roles so well, it's uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I've I've watched that show, and uh, it is funny. It's <laughs> oh, it, it is, and the things that they look for too. You know, like you said, it's just so out there. Every single cryptid under the sun, right, happens to be there, and they're searching for it. And, you know, it's funny. And again, at least in the early episodes, it was funny to me is that they're all running around, you know, armed to the teeth. Every last one of them has, has their gun. But I think I've only seen one single episode where they've ever even used it. So, like, they're walking around so armed and they never even do anything. It's just, it's just funny. 
Okay, into second topic you have. Next, I wanted to talk about a trend in society and even myself that I've been noticing uh, in the last time. I found that a lot of people, especially on the internet, have lost touch with the things that really matter in life. Everyone is always looking at some sort of screen, let it be the PC, the smartphone, or whatnot. Everybody is always talking about the most irrelevant things, and no one's ever slowing down, taking a breath, and looking around. And that's kind of sad. For example, I personally would call myself a nature guy. I really like being out there. Being in nature can really reset my mind, and it helps me find my inner peace. I love taking photos of the nature around me. When I want to photograph insects, I just have a stop at a small strip of grass. After some time of close looking, I will find lots and lots of life roaming around the grass blades and twigs. And the longer you look, the more little things you will find. But if I'd show it to someone else, they would have never found it and they wouldn't even care. They would just walk over the grass, potentially killing some of the insects and move on as quickly as they came. And that's just an example for what I mean, but I think it sums it up pretty well. <laughs> oh boy, that got deep and philosophical, but do you know what I mean with that? What do you think? Uh, no, I do agree, and, uh, you know, in terms of what you were saying, it certainly is something that I notice in the world, notice in society, and it's sad, but I don't think that there's anything that will ever be done about it, in large, but yes, it's something that I am aware of in society, and I think it's something that we are all guilty of. I think in this world of ours, with the way things are, it's one of those things that's bound to happen to all of us at some point. And uh, that's just, it's a product of our environment, I feel. But that's not to say there aren't ways to snap out of it. And, you know, that's what I do. I take time every single day where I just step back and just kind of look around, get lost in thought, you name it, daydream a bit and, and all of that. And uh, I do that as a way to kind of step back from all of this insanity and uh, kind of get more grounded with the here and now and uh, some things that I think are important that we shouldn't lose sight of, especially the things close to home. You know, all of that. It's, it's very important, and those things are different to everyone, but we can't lose sight of some things that we take for granted in life. We get so lost in all of this online stuff, this social media stuff, the craziness in the world, you name it. And how can you not? It's... How can you not? But we can't let this completely... At least we shouldn't, I don't think, let ourselves be absorbed in it 24-7 and let that be our lives. I think it's important to step back and look and, appreci and appreciate some of the smaller things and all of that. So yeah, I do, I do agree with you completely. It's something that shouldn't be lost in this world. So thank you for your email, and you said, uh, excuse me for my English. It may have been weird or wrong sometimes because it is neither my native language nor my main language, um, but I will have to say that I thought your English was fantastic, very well written, fluid, good grammar, uh, good vocabulary, so... Very, very nicely done. 
and uh, completely understandable, so all is good there. Thank you for a good email. And with that, dear listeners, that's all that I have for you in today's broadcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this program, and I hope you could be here again for the next show that I do. Until then, take care. This is VORW.